Welcome to Cowhorse, Full Contact by Ben Self, with host Chris Dawson and Russell Dilday. This episode is brought to you by Arena Works. So anyhow, what about the camel coat? Roberts? Yeah. I can't remember if I was at the Reign of Futurity or the World Show. And here comes, at that time, little Robert. (laughs) Little Bobby. (laughs) And he is a Bob Loomis... Disciple? Protégé. Protégé. <laughs> and he may not have worked for Bob, but he talked like him. He acted like him. The only thing he didn't do was chew. Because Bob used to chew. And uh, here comes Robert. And he's got a, you know, judges have a, the camel hair long trench coat that when we have to go north and it's cold and you buy that that coat it's not camel hair it's, that one was <laughs> that yeah. one was I, it, I had the it, trench i had the raincoat one time yeah it, it, it was it, it was expensive looking <laughs> and robert is strutting around the the uh where the exhibits are all the the vet the vendors vendors and he's walking around, and there must be 10 women. <laughs> now, this is before Cheryl. This is Let's how long. Let's be clear. The, the, yeah, it's before BC. Cheryl. It's before BC. Cheryl. BC. We're, we're all good. We're all good here. There's 10 girls walking behind him. Carrying his train or what? Uh, you know, we chatted for a little bit, and... That was kind of the end of that. So that's the end of that story. <laughs> well, that kind of left us a little flat there, Steve. Well, yeah. I went on my merry way. And thought, if only I could be Robert. No. <laughs> Did you go get you a camel hair coat after no. that? No. No. Were I you was, married to Carol at that time? I No. Were you married at all at that time? Um, you know, I don't remember. (laughs) (laughs) But but Robert doesn't do anything for free, so. (laughs) Yeah, he's helped me with my business plan. Oh my goodness. Well, in case you're wondering, we're back here with Cowhorse Full Contact. Today's guest, it's overlapped a little bit with Robert John, but today we have the esteemed, the one and only Steve Metcalf, straight up out of Pilot Point, Texas. And I'm Chris Dawson, sitting across from Russell Dilday, and we got Ben Self behind the board. Welcome. And you guys were whining about not having episodes, so here you go. We gotta, we're going to stack them on you now. Welcome. Say something, Ben. <laughs> He's a man of few. Right <laughs> Ben's, Ben's mouth, mouth is full of Sour Boy's candy at the moment. He's on, the, yeah, he's on the internet looking for a camel hair coat. <laughs> <laughs> right. He's like, that's, that's 
is what I need. I got I a, knew it. That's I got all a podcast. I got fame. I got fortune. I got no girl. I got a camel hair coat. Put that on Farmers Only. I'm in. <laughs> talk, talk to Robert. That's my sour boy. <laughs> don't be, don't be trying to get them girls with them sour boys candies now. Like bait. Yeah, bait, bait just, you can roll them out, <laughs> and then just come follow them all the way up to you. Like Lady in the Tramp. <laughs> yeah. Hey Ben, how come you're getting red? He does. He's that. only got two colors: <laughs> red and clear. <laughs> You like Translucent. wine. You, you like wine, huh? <laughs> Red and clear. <laughs> <laughs> well, we're glad you joined us today, Steve. Let's uh, dip right in to the roots a little bit. Where were you born? I wasn't. <laughs> Hatched from under a rock. Hatched from under a rock. I was born in um, Kirkland, Washington. Oh. Which is by Seattle uh, in the rainy country. So this has been like home weather for you the last week oh, or so. Oh, gosh. I'm going through withdrawals. <laughs> it, uh, yeah, I was born there and uh, lived there for until 20, 26 years ago and moved to Texas. There you when go. were you born? You mean how old am I? Yeah. That's none of your business. <laughs> we'll figure it out sooner or later. <laughs> I was born we in, already established you're older than Ro, uh, Robert. Yeah, I'm 69. I was oh. born in 52. I'm a 52 model. And, uh, and so you lived there for... What did your mom and dad do? My father was a horse trainer. I am a horse show brat. What kind of horses? American Saddlebreds. Oh, really? I've got pictures of him riding the first world's champion five-gated horse. Really? And my dad was originally from Kentucky, um, Danville, Kentucky. And there's a, at the courthouse, there's a, there's the Metcalf house and a, and J Reverend John Metcalf settled Danville, Kentucky. No, no kidding. No kidding. Yep, yep. And um, and my dad ended up on the West Coast because of the war. And uh, he went out there and was in the military and ended up on the West Coast. Um, and see, my father was much older than I, than average dad. My dad was born in 1897. Oh, wow. There you go. Yeah. And, um. So he didn't have you till he was at 50 eight. something. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. That's remarkable. 1897? Yep. Holy Can miracle. you imagine what my dad saw in his lifetime? The wow. The changes. That's yeah. insane. I don't, I don't know if I didn't even know grandparents that were born in the 1800s. That's a lot. I'm kind of a generation removed. Mm -hmm. That's yeah. why I'm, you know, sometimes called a little different. 
<laughs> you have a bunch of brothers and sisters? Reasons. I've got, I had five half brothers. He had his first family. There were five boys. And they were raised in, in Oregon, Lake Oswego, Oregon. And I'm from the second family, and I have two older sisters. I got you. Holy mackerel. And, Eight of you. Yep. Eight little Metcalfs. And my mother was 30 years younger than my dad. See, and that apple didn't fall far from the tree. <laughs> <laughs> There's seven years oh, difference that, between Carol I and know, I. I not in looks. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But uh, my dad trained American Saddlebreds, had a very successful career. Um, showed we we'd go on the road when I was a little kid and and he'd he'd show at the Cal Palace and Del Mar and Santa Barbara and he had a very high end group of customers. In those days we showed American Horse Show Association. And uh, when you went to one of those horse shows, um even though my father was showing saddlebreds, there were Western trainers there because it was American Horse Shows Association and they had Western classes and hunters and jumpers and that's how I got to know Jimmy Williams and, and Don Dodge and Clyde Kennedy and guys like that, Tony Amarell. Uh, they were good friends of my dad and, and uh, I got to be around them as a little kid. And, and uh it's like a little horse trainer's dream it it was it was i i got an opportunity uh there was a gentleman by the name of slim pickens <laughs> who was a rodeo clown and that's all i knew slim as is a rodeo clown and uh when i was a little kid he'd be out there you know fighting the bulls and all that and when we would come in, my, my dad was friends with Slim, and Slim would take me in there and show me how he put the gunpowder in his, in his hat, and he'd shoot off his gun, and his hat would blow up and all that. And, and then later on, you know, because Slim, had, he was a big guy, and he'd had a lot of bones broken and stuff, and he had fortune to get into Hollywood and, and be a movie star, and... I didn't know him when he was a movie star. I knew him as a rodeo clown. And, uh, and that was before his movie career took off? Oh, up? yeah. It was, it was before his movie career. Oh, no kidding. Yeah, he was just a, ro he was a rodeo clown. And Forever. A, and a real good one. Yes, good. And yeah. just imagine what your dad saw take place as far as going to the moon, cars, uh, from the buggy yep. to the... Automobile. I mean, at when did he die? Uh, he passed away at the age of 87. He died on the way to the hospital. He had broke, uh, he drove seven horses, and that morning he went to the hospital, and his gallbladder burst, and he died on the way to the hospital. So in the 70s? It right? was... Uh, no, you said 87, he was uh, 18, 
they had exhibitor parties after the horse show and the horse show never went beyond nine o'clock at night and and uh, it was about entertainment and the customers would buy boxes and they would show up there with their minks and and you know formally dressed and it was very social extremely social about what time was this uh this was in the 60s in the 60s yeah and i showed american horse shows association clear up until the the 70s uh i would go to open shows i mean i'm i'm skipping quite a bit but when i eventually went out on my own i'd go to a horse show with 35 head of horses and i would show saddlebreds and showing the stock horse and showing the pleasure western pleasure and uh all the i did all the events explain to someone who doesn't know anything explain the saddlebred well the american saddlebred is the peacock of the horse show world and um you have uh three gated horses and five gated horses and the five gated horse is is the walk trot and the canner and the slow gate and the rack and uh, a walk trot horse or a three gated horse as they were called was you you did the the walk the trot and the canner and um and it's in an english saddle and uh I remember being at the PI, which was a Pacific International in Portland, Oregon. Again, an ASHA show. You had all the events. You had Jimmy Williams there, and you had Ronnie Richards there, and and uh, you know Ronnie's doing the Western, and in fact, Ronnie Richards' wife showed American Saddlebreds, and uh, and Jimmy Williams showed Hunters and Jumpers, and and stock horses also and uh, but I remember being there and there was a, a lady there called uh, her name was Ms. Roth of Wyworry Farms and she had American Saddlebreds and had Hackney Ponies and I didn't even know that she had Western horses too and uh, I was 16 and I showed and won the the uh, three-gated class uh, in the English and Stan Morrison who was his the head trainer for Mrs. Roth came to me with a note and I opened it up and it was for Mrs. Roth and she asked she wanted to invite me to come and sit in her booth and so I showed it to my dad and he said, well, Ms. Roth is, you know, from California and she has a very high end form. And, and uh, so I went and sat with her and get your hind parts up there and sit in that booth, son. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, she told me that when I graduated from high school, if I wanted a job, that she would hire me. And I discussed it with my dad, and I'd been showing Western horses too. And and uh, my dad told me that with the way the saddlebred industry was, and that what it was declining, that that I would be better off to, you know, continue to to work on my Western skills and do that. Unbeknownst to me, that she had 
hack one of the greatest hackamore horses with Tony Amarell. <laughs> but I didn't know she had Western horses. And if I'd have known that, I'd probably taken the job. And, uh, and much later on, because Tony and I had a really good relationship and we bought and sold a lot of horses together over the years, that I found out that she had Western horses too. So that's why you didn't take the job because of the, the because the of my father's my father's advice, uh, and he you. he felt like, you know, if I wanted to, I'd already made up my mind that this is what I was going to do <coughs> for a living, and uh, he just he just felt like uh, there was such a decline in the saddle horse industry that I would do better off because I was. I was being very successful in the Western also. So now the saddlebreds, I mean, are, are we talking about basically the same thing as like the Tennessee Walkers? No, is that Tennessee totally Walkers are a completely different breed. Completely different breed. Yeah. Because I know that the government come in on the Tennessee Walkers. Did that have any effect on the saddlebreds <laughs> as well? You know, a certain amount. You had tail sets and, and uh, you know, you do, you do cut their tails. And uh, so... The, the, it, it wasn't as devastating to the saddlebred industry, I don't believe, as it was with the Tennessee Walkers, because the theory with the Tennessee Walker was that you soared their front end so that they would squat and get and and elevate their front ends, and and they, you know, they we used chains on our horses, but it was to get them to step out of the chain, not necessarily to soar them, and uh, and then they. You know, unfortunately, they got into internal blisters and stuff to soar the Tennessee Walker. So it wasn't really as quite as, in, from my perspective, it wasn't as devastating. But there was a lot of work involved with the saddle horses and, uh, uh, you know, maintaining them. And, of course, my dad was a perfectionist. He had... In his barn, he had a clean tack room and a dirty tack room. And at the end of the day, every piece of equipment in that dirty tack room got saddle soaked and hung up in the same place in the clean tack room every day. And my dad would roll over in his grave today if he saw my tack room. And um, But you also, you know, Hay was $25 a ton, and... You didn't have five groom. You didn't have I, a horse for every five horses either. He, he didn't have a groom for every five horses. I mean, nowadays, uh, that would be... I would love to be able to do that. Yeah, that's incredible. Yeah. Wow. So, after growing up there in the horse show deal, and, like I say, you're, I mean, you're probably one of the only ones we've talked to that grew up as a horse show kid in that era, right? Nobody, we haven't had anybody else like that, have we? I don't think. Not unless it was Ryan Richards. Nope. And, it and wasn't. he was before, yeah. honestly. Yeah. So this is a real, I mean. I, I haven't had anybody grow up in the saddlebred other than Ronnie met Karen. Yeah, cause she, because he said, she couldn't get the front end to come up. Right. He was giving her a little flack, and she said, yeah, we just get on your cowboy her. and show but it to me if you want. And he did. Much, much later on in years, when I was hauling kids down to the, 
the CPHA medal finals in Diamond Bar, California is when I met Karn and, and Ronnie, and I knew Ronnie before that. And Karen got to talking to me and she says, I knew your dad. And she said, I showed saddlebreds. And she said, I saw you show saddlebreds at the Pacific, or the, huh? the, the, the PI. And uh, so it was kind of kind of b- bizarre, you know, all the worlds and, and how they crisscross, huh? How they crisscrossed all it, the worlds, exactly. Yeah. Small world, you know. But but I did ASHA for quite a number of years, and we would go to quarter horse shows to school our horses to get ready to go to an open show because when you went to a what we called an open show, an ASHA show, there was always money. You know, you had the stallion and gilding class, and you had the mayor's class, and and but they always had prize money in them, so they were more expensive. And you didn't want to go in there and school a horse when there was fifteen hundred bucks up. You know, it been a pretty good prize. Yeah, day. in that in that day. Wow. So we would go to quarter horse shows to kind of get our horses right to get ready to go to an open show. Mm. It's a little bit like that today. Right? Yeah. Yeah. Pretty similar. Yeah. So your dad growing up there, and then you decide you're going to crack off there and do the Western horses. Well, my dad managed a stable in in Kirkland, Washington, for a gentleman. His name was Bill Boeing, and he was Boeing. Like the Boeing? Boeing airplanes. Wow. And... It was a very large facility. It had five indoor arenas, and we had a rent string of 46 head of horses uh, with an indoor arena. And it's a very unique place. There's a bridal trails. It's called Bridal Trail State Park. And this, it is a state park, and it's only, you can't, no motorcycles, it, they're horse trails. And it was on the edge of that. And so there was, um, we had this facility and we would, you know, in those days there were a lot of riding academies and everything and, and people could rent a horse and go for a trail ride and that sort of thing. And originally it was, it was, uh, it was, started by a gentleman by the name of Jimmy Rainwater. He started this rent string, and it was a gold mine. And he passed away, and they went to sell it, and a, uh, a gentleman uh, that was a um, Tex Johnson, who was an airplane pilot, he was a test pilot for Boeing. He, <laughs> he, test, he tested all the jets, and that would seem like a terrible job. <laughs> <laughs> and he was a bachelor. Yeah. And supposedly the rumor is he ended up with the place on a card game. And he High stakes up, poker. Yeah. And, and that's the rumor, and I'm sure you'll get comments about that, whether it's true or not, but that's what I, my understanding was. And Tex had it, and he was a... He, he was a bachelor, and he, he liked to go out and have a good time, and he was a 
test pilot and he liked to go fast and but anyway he had it for a while and realized that it was way more than he wanted to mess with and bill bailed him out and bought it and then built it and added on to it and at the time my father was training saddle horses out of there and uh, when Bill bought it and took it over, he went to my father and asked him if he would manage it. And he said he would. And then we brought in a dressage trainer from England, and we had a hunter and jumper trainer from France. And, um, and then Bill's daughters, Susie and Bibi, rode with my father. Susie showed saddlebreds, and I've got pictures of Susie showing her American saddlebreds with my dad. And uh, we hired a gentleman, his name was Jerry Blake, <coughs> and he ran the rent strength. There were 46 head of rent horses, and that was at one area, and they would rent out horses and give lessons and and they had contracts with the Girl Scouts and they would come in and ride and they, of course they had to buy a helmet and a pair of riding boots and they had to have two lessons before they could go out in the trails. <laughs> and then at the other end of the facility we had three indoor arenas and that's where the dressage trainer and the hunter and jumper trainer was. And then my father hired Tony Garcia he was from Oregon, and Tony Garcia came up there and did the Western Division. And, uh, and then I started hanging around with Tony, and I was a young kid, and started riding with him as a youth, and uh, showed and did very well. And my father ran the whole deal under Triad Broadcasting Company. Um, it's that like was, an international house of pancakes. Well, it was Triad wow. Broadcasting Company because what they did was, my understanding was, it was the Triad Broadcasting Company and then it was the helicopter factory and then it was Central Park Stables. And Central Park Stables was kind of, the, you know, in the business world of running money through something that's a loss. You know, they, it was way over my head. Right. And, uh, and that's how it was operated. But there, there had to have been 600 stalls there. And you imagine a place at that time with five covered arenas? No. Yeah. And, and we had horse shows there, big horse shows. Wow. The Nile Mounted Patrol had their horse show every year there. And, and I'll never forget, I was 12 years old, and I was showing in the, the open stock horse. They called it Stock Horse then. And it was cold, it was September, and, and we're all sitting around and Tony says, go in my tack room and get me a pouch of beech nut chewing tobacco. And so I went in there and brought him out a pouch and they're all standing around, Matt Day. Oh Matt yeah. Day, Matt Day was there during all this. And uh, Bob Boyce, Robbie oh, Boyce. Oh, wow. See, Bob, Bob Boyce worked for Tony, too. He was working for Tony when I rode under Tony. 
And uh, so anyway, they passed around this patch of this pouch of beech nut. And they said, and and I was kind of a horseshoe brat. And uh, they said, do you want some of this? And I said, sure. And so I went in there and got a little of that beaching out. And Tony says, oh, no, if you're going to take some, you got to take three fingers. <laughs> and so I've got a big wad of this, and I stuff it in my mouth. And, and the open stock horse is going on, and they're calling for my number. And I've had this beaching it chewing tobacco in my mouth for about five minutes. <laughs> and and uh, I'm starting to get a little dizzy. <laughs> and so anyway, they call my number and I go in there and I run the pattern. And the first rundown I do and stop, I swallowed about half of that. Oh. <laughs> and, and when I got done with my pattern, I came out and my dad's standing there. And my, my father was a, he was a real gentleman. And... Uh, he looked at me and he said, good run, son. And I just reached down and spit on the ground and said, thanks, Dad. Oh. I, I think my father had a little talk with Tony. <laughs> <laughs> and I proceeded to go outside. And of course, it was dark out there. And I didn't feel very well at all. <laughs> you got rid of some. <laughs> I got rid of a lot. I'm envisioning the sandlot scene on the Ferris wheel. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah, but you know, in those those days, it was that same that that same friendship that we have today. I mean, guys had fun, and they teased the kids, and and uh, everybody had a good time. And, and I know the money's big now. Yeah. But I have done all divisions. I, I spent time in Kentucky riding racehorses for the Japanese. Uh, I showed Arabians and won with Arabians and showed the saddle horses. You the, jockeyed the racehorses? No, I trained Trained them for them. Mm. Yeah. And uh, how much did that differ? Uh, com it's completely different. Uh, when I was, and I intermixed with the thoroughbred deal, when I worked for Tony, right next door was a racetrack. And, and I'm, I'm skipping. After I rode with Tony, uh, Tony had a customer that built him a barn, and he moved into that barn. I think I was, uh, I think I was 17. And uh, I moved over there and went to work for Tony. I was going to school, finishing high school. And, um, and I uh, would, there, there was a racetrack over there and the gentleman's name was Army Sage and he had a bunch of racehorses, some pretty high-end ones. And I made a deal, I'd get up at four and go over there and they would, turn some little lights on and I'd gallop racehorses and condition them to go to the track and then I'd be done by about seven and I'd go take a shower and then I'd go to work hop the fence and go to work at Tony's and um, that's how I got involved in the racehorses 
and uh, some of those horses uh, went to the track and did really well. I put a little more handle on them. In those days, they didn't believe in putting any handle on them at all because they felt like it would loot, you know, ruin their spirit. Mm -hmm. And so I put a little more handle on them to where you got him around those corners and even taught a few of them to change leads going around those corners. And, uh, and then I started getting a reputation for the racehorses and I was getting a few more and they were coming into Tony's and I was getting them started and they were going to the track and they were winning. And, and, uh, but I was mainly working for Tony and giving lessons and training horses. And Tony was pretty busy going down the road at that time. He, he had Amitup too and, and who was a halter stud. And, and uh, he was getting involved in, in the quarter horse deal. And, and uh, but I would get some of those racehorses in to redo or whatever and so tony was pretty epic at the time or is this before no he he was pretty that's that, his time that was his time that was his heyday he, and what made him what put him at that position over i think you around? know he he was in oregon and had a reputation i mean a good reputation as a horseman and that's why tony or my father hired him to come in here and, and run the western division at central park stables and then he had a big group of non-pros and uh, we called them amateurs then and and kids and he was in his heyday he had chris fournier and and uh, matt day and and uh in fact he married uh kathy um Fournier, and um, and he was in his heyday. What know. did he have at that time that set him apart from everyone else? Charisma. Mm. He he had a good 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 skills with talking to people, and he had talent. He would he had great ability. He was quiet with a horse, and uh, and he won. I'll tell you and, what, that charisma can be underrated. You know, like there's a lot of guys that can do it. But if you can't sell yourself to him, I mean, shoot, it really don't matter. I he mean, he he backed it up. Yeah, he backed it up, and he was smart, and he had money behind him. And um, at that time, it was in our country. There, it was Bruce Gilchrist and Tony Garcia. Uh huh. And Bruce was the polar opposite. Bruce was a mechanic, and he'd get horses broke. You know, sometimes his uh, presentation might be a little tough. <laughs> and uh, But, you know, I, I won't take anything away from Bruce. A lot of people learned a lot of things from Bruce. Just he, didn't have the same bedside manner as Tony? I think so. Hmm. And uh, But he, he, he had a science to his horses. But that was the main competition. Why did you not go on in the racehorse world even then it you had know, to be more money i was uh when i um i was engaged to julie westinghouse and she was in the hunters and jumpers and that's when i was in, involved i rode hunters and jumpers too i got all of her warm bloods and 
and thoroughbreds. I trained on them and got them ready for her to show. And um, she had gone to Kentucky. And Ju Julie was the heiress to, to the, invented the air brake that's on every plane truck. Oh, wow. Yeah. And, um, but anyway, she went to Kentucky to do something with the hunters and jumpers and she called me up one day and said you need to come here and get involved in the thoroughbred deal. My brother was also involved in the thoroughbred deal in a very heavy way. Uh, John Metcalf, he was a veterinarian. He did all the research for DMSO. That was your brother? Really? Yes. Name and, for the Reverend? Well, after. Yeah. <laughs> And, uh, wow. and John did all of Jay Agnew's work, and he was on the racetrack, and he was a big gun, and they would fly him to France, and, and he'd go to Kentucky, and he was big into the thoroughbred deal. But anyway, so I went for two months and went to Kentucky, and it was in 1976. And it was during... Calumet and the big wreck at Calumet and there's been books written about it and I got to meet the character and he was a character that uh, got involved with the heiress to Calumet and and uh, um, what's the wreck well he was a he was an owner of a, a a uh, stable there and had thoroughbreds and he got involved with her had a relationship with her and he was kind of a crook and um, and that's the same year that the Kentucky Horse Park opened up in 76 and uh, but anyway I got to go through Calumet and all that and stay there and then uh, Julie, my fiance, got me involved with some Japanese that needed some help, and so I started conditioning their horses and horses that had been hurt, horses that had problems, and reconditioned all these horses, and then went to the Keeneland sale, and I was at the Keeneland sale, and I'm walking around, and no one speaks English. <laughs> I mean, you got to understand, this is in 76, I'm pretty young, uh, in some ways I'm real knowledgeable, in some ways I'm really naive. But the horse business is rolling super strong in 76, right? Oh, I mean, it's oh, crazy, like, because the crash didn't come until the 80s, right? right. So, and I so I'm at the sale, and the Chinese are there, the Japanese are there, they're buying horses at the Keeneland sale. And I just realized that I was way over my head. And, it, and if I had been 10 years older, I would still be in the thoroughbred industry from a financial standpoint. Mm -hmm. And to me, the thoroughbred industry at that time, the way I perceive it, it's, it's, I'm a very hands-on person with the people that ride with me. I like to teach them how to train their horses and how to ride their horses. 
and the thoroughbred industry, the people didn't come out to the barn. I mean, it was a very social deal, and I understood social because I've been in the saddle horse industry, but they don't come out to the barn. You know, they, they see their horses show, and they visit with you, and they go to the exhibitors' parties, but there's a real separation there. And in the thoroughbred industry at that time, the way I perceived it at my age, that's the way it was. And it was just way over my head, um, if, if, I'm, if you're understanding what I'm saying. Mm-hmm. And uh, wasn't the style you wanted? It just, uh, I got on that airplane to go home, and people were on the airplane uh, that had, you know, they're talking about, I mean, everybody on the airplane had been at the Keeneland sale. And they're talking about horses that had sold for, you know, if, if so-and-so had paid another 300000 for that horse, uh, he would have gotten a lot of better horse than the one he paid 190000 for. And I'm sitting there going, I'm going home, and I have a thriving business going, and when I sell a horse for $10,000, I've hit a We're home run. It. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I'm like, holy cow. And I, I Nobody's going to kill me over this $10,000 horse. No. But, but, it, but it, uh, and I, and I had high end horses, but it was, it was just a little overwhelming for me at that stage of the game. And what yeah. was it? What was Calumet? Calumet? Calumet yeah. is at one time was one of the leading breeding farms in the country. And it's still there today. And they have their own Calumet was started Calumet baking powder. Oh, and it was when I was there. It was fifteen hundred acres. They have their own fire department. Oh uh, my lord! Uh, every every stall that you went in, all the fittings were brass. Mm. Um, you'd go into the stallion barn, and you're looking at uh, a plaque that says "Wartime" on it, "Man of War." Um, mm. it, it's just. It's just unbelievable. Overwhelming. Yeah. And so the guy gets the air and steals a bunch of money or horses yeah, or... You know, uh, read just the, a mess. Read the book. <laughs> What's the name of the book? Uh, you know, I, I can't remember. There are no <laughs> but, help. Google but, it. If, go you're, if you're listening right now, Google it. Google yeah. the wreck at Calumet and see what comes up. Yeah. You're going that. Ben's not Googling. He's playing chess on his computer. What are you talking oh about? Oh, my God. He's supposed to be kicking us some info. Ben, is that, is, that, that sheet. is that crown you're drinking? <laughs> <laughs> it's not hey, iced Hey, you tea. haven't tried your ghostwood, Steve. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but anyway. He so, just agrees. <laughs> so I went back home to my thriving business. and So, did, but did the Calumed mess turn you off partly on the no calumet didn't turn me off it was just the overwhelming numbers i just wasn't ready for it yeah yeah and how old are you oh i was in my 20s early 20s oh wow that's yeah that's early but i was i got a really good a really good job on the thoroughbreds and i had a mare that i reconditioned and and went to long acres which was in seattle there and and set a track record at six furlongs, mm. and <coughs> and so if if I had wanted to build that 
reputation and been mature enough, I could have done that, and who knows? It had to have been simpler. Oh, I don't know about that. It wasn't? Um, you know, I, I've never looked at it as being simpler or being complicated. As, as far as the training of them, how do you compare it with the cow horse? Oh, gosh. They're, they're not even in the same worlds. You know, my, so, li my life's never been about simple. But what's the struggle? What is the struggle that you reach in the um, racehorse world that you're trying to figure out? Is it more of the just... Um, you know, I'll, I'll tell you how I... Because I've ridden all breeds. You know, that, that's my one uniqueness that I've ridden many breeds and had success in a lot of them. Arabians and thoroughbreds mentally think very much alike. And saddlebreds and quarter horses think very much alike. And they're as different as night and day comparing, <laughs> comparing the two. Thoroughbreds and, sa and Arabians, and I won a lot with some Arabians in the Rainin, Gowers, English, um, that's where I learned to work from the inside out. I didn't learn to work from the inside out with, with quarter horses. I learned to work from the inside out with thoroughbreds and, and Arabians. When you say inside out, you mean like mentally? Mentally. Yeah. Because if you have a day to day and you get on your horse and you have plans to do something with them and if it's a thoroughbred or an Arabian, your plans may change. And that doesn't mean to say that they're, they're bad by any means. I, I love them. They are a mental deal. And you're not going to take a thoroughbred and saddle him up. And if he's a little bronchy, go saddle him and leave him half a day tied to the fence with a bucket of water. And you think he bucked bad that day? Go get on him again and see how tight his, his heart girth is. Sometimes you have to take a little different path with them. And you have to think about how to get through. It's a winding road. It's not a freeway. And Sounds like some of the ones I refer to, they play chess, not checkers. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and that's how I really learned to train horses. And I apply it to my cow horses and my reiners, you know, working what I call from the inside out, working on their mind. To me, horses are just like people. They're all individuals. And sometimes your approach to them has got to be a little different because my philosophy is, I want to get that horse to like what he does, not just force feed it to mm -hmm. him. And I, at my stage I'm at, at 69 years old, I love a horse that's a thinker. It's, to me, it's easier because if you know how they talk and you listen to them, you can ease them through things and get so much stuff done without just going down that freeway and force feeding it to them and trying to get them to submit. Mm -hmm. 
and then at the end of the line, you have a horse that's a willing participant for a long time. And, and that's been my deal is, I have a lot of horses that have a lot of longevity. Yeah, horses. that's no lie. Oh, man. Yeah, we were running through some of your Aqu- yeah. Equistat numbers and looking at some of them horses and like, Vintage to own shines. He's still drawing checks at 20 years old and still knocking it out, and uh, amongst others. But man, alive that one—that's that's incredible for a cow horse. But I tell people that all the time there at the house. I'm like, listen, in my house, I live down there near Weatherford. Around Weatherford, there's probably a thousand guys within a 40 mile radius that know to stop, draw, and turn around with a cow. But there's only a handful of them that know how to make them want to do it. Yep. And those are the ones that win. You know, I just love a horse that just, you know, is, is a willing participant. And, and sometimes you have to go through the winding roads to get to that point. And, uh, you know, that's, that, that, that's, what I, that's what I enjoy. My stepdad used to tell me if, oh, we had a few around there that were easy, like pretty simple kind of horses. And he said, man, if they were all like that, it'd make me want to quit. And at the time, I'm in high school, and I'm like, what are you talking about? These things are easy. This is awesome. Like, they're good. They're simple. You just do it. But now I'm getting to where I understand what he was saying. Because just like you're saying, I mean, just to go get on one of them that, because there's some fashionably bred things in the, from the cutting cow horse world that you just grind it out. And that's how they learn. And eventually they come on and it's just every day you just go out there and you just put them through the same motions and pretty quick they get good at it but the ones i like are the ones that you got to show them like it better have a reason why you're teaching why are you teaching me this you know and that's the part that and I, that's what i'm picking up from what hey, you're putting down right hey, now. you know something i saw i saw a young guy with a whole bunch of talent take a bay horse that wasn't easy pretty bay horse and go win a whole lot of stuff on him and i'll guarantee you i know for a fact it wasn't a straight line freeway (laughs) (laughs) his babies haven't been straight line freeways either (laughs) we all know what bay stud that is yeah and uh, we know yep and and when he won he won big and he won with enthusiasm and it was special and the process of getting him there and and we like those old horses that don't think a lot and they just do a b c we appreciate them too i mean there's no question about it but as a horseman when you get one that you know as an athlete and he's a big thinker and he's a challenge and you get it done and you know that in the process of getting it done it wasn't just through submission it was through willingness that stays with you yep yeah and and it's easy to think about that horse you know and and you're talking about traveling jones but the what got me through a lot of terrible times in my career was when people would come up be like hey you know what this horse show didn't go the way you wanted it to but them horses looked happy doing what they were doing you might not have won anything today and you're gonna go home with your tail between your legs but them horses looked like they enjoyed their job well that was like a little feather that i could put in my hat that kind of kept me 
from pulling the truck off into a bridge embankment on the way home. Not only that, but that bay horse and other horses you had had that were similar, they taught you more about being a horseman than the one that you could go A, B, C. Yep. And now those horses, you know, I've rode a lot of nice horses. And I get a kick out of people that when I'll see them, young, young horse trainers trying to be horsemen and say, you know, I've been in the business four years and this horse is, <laughs> this horse is a great horse. And, and, and this horse over here that I've got that I want to sell, he's a great horse too. Out of all the horses that I've trained, I've had two great ones. Yeah. And the rest of them, and I've had a lot of really good horses. I've been blessed with a lot of good horses. I've had two great ones. And they were the kind of horses, those two great horses, I would work on things that day. And the next day I would get up, saddle them up, and go to work on it, and it would be there. There. It would be there, and I would think, that kid that's working for me, he better not have rode this horse last night. <laughs> <laughs> because that, that, you know, a great horse to me, he has confirmation. He has enough substance to him, enough frame to him, to where he can withstand what we have to do. And they have balance. And God gives them that balance. And then they, then they have the attitude to be willing. And if you have those three things, you're going to have a special horse. Right. Which were your two great ones? Um, the first one I didn't really train. His name was Copper Jade. Um, I, it was the first year out on my own. And Tony was good friends with Tony Amarell and he was hunting a horse and there was a there was a fellow by the name of Jim Hannon and he is a he takes care of ranches and he's a cowboy and Tony Amarell knew about this horse and Tony Garcia was looking for a horse for a kid and he went down there and he bought this horse and he was a big bay horse and he was by Triangular Joe. <laughs> now, you breathe, you, you look up those bloodlines and see where, it, there's no Doc Bar in there. <laughs> there's no King Fritz. <laughs> by Rhombus out of Trapezoid. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And for those that don't know who King Fritz or Doc Bar was, then maybe Bueno Checks and Remenek. <laughs> There wasn't any of that in there either, because they weren't even born yet. <laughs> but, <laughs> but anyway, he brought this horse home, and he was a big 15-1-2 bay gilding, and he was a good horse. And that was the last year I worked for Tony. And when I moved and went out on my own, I'd been at Garcia's for five, four years, and I went out on my own, and those people decided to move that horse with me. And Ronnie, 
Richards, uh, you know, Ronnie would judge just enough so that he could check out the livestock around the country. <laughs> and I knew Ronnie well because, you know, I've been around him a lot and stuff. And Ronnie's a smart guy. And he ran as good of a non-pro and youth program that ever existed. And Ronnie came up to Central Park Stables. And, and we had a big horse show there. And my young lady, Cindy Kenner, showed Copper Jade there and won. And he run down, he was a big horse, and when he did things big, everything was big. I mean, he run and stopped huge and turned around pretty and was quiet. And uh, so anyway, I took Cindy to the CPHA medal finals, which was the California Professional you know, it's a, it was the medal final we had every year, and they were in Diamond Bar, California. And uh, she showed there and did really well. In fact, uh, Lori Richards, at that time Richards was there, and I think she showed Lucky Libra. I heard of that <laughs> one. Lucky yeah, Libra. And, and, and Lori That's won. That's what they used to call me, too. Lori won, <laughs> Lori won the CPHA medal final. She was 15 and won the CPHA medal finals on Lucky Libra. And, um, and my girl, Cindy Kenner, was, I think she was like seventh or something, and no one from the state of California had ever done that, you know. And anyway, when we got home, there was a phone call from Ronnie to my owner, and they bought him. And what's really interesting in this small world is two years before that, Ronnie, when I was still working for Tony Garcia, he bought Charlie Wood. Ronnie Richards bought Charlie Wood from Cindy Kenner. That was her horse before that. And it was for Doug Ingersoll's wife, Debbie. Mm. And then two years later, Charlie got hurt or whatever, and Debbie needed another horse. They bought Copper Jade. Did Charlie Wood have anything to do with Anita Wood? No. No. No, his name was... Um, no, I can't even remember who he was by. Mm. But anyway, and uh, so... She owned both of those horses, Doug's wife. It was way before it was, you know, she was still a youth. Mm-hmm. And um, so she, she, ended, she owned both of those horses, and they went on to show Copper Jade. And, and so I'll tell you a little story. You know, I don't, I don't believe in this, but I saw it happen. On the way back from the CPHA medal finals. I came, uh, I just had a two horse trailer because Cindy was the only person I took to the CPHA finals and I'm going back when Cindy Kenner showed him there. On the way back, I called Jim Hannon and said, I've got Copper Jade and he called him Mortai. He said, I've got Copper Jade in the trailer 
and I'm coming through and I'd like you to stop and he says I've got another horse I want to show you and Jim had a really great reputation as a horseman but he he was uh, you know if there's horse um, rough there there were some things about him that we probably don't want to talk about <laughs> but anyway so some Jimmy Williams esque things no oh oh gotcha. no no not even close oh um, but he lived in Marysville California mm. so anyway on the way through uh, I stop and Jim's gonna meet me in Marysville and take me out to the ranch to show me this sorrow horse so I'm 20 some years old and I see this guy with a black hat on and there's this much dirt on it and he's he's a little taller than me and and I know he's a bad cat and so anyway he, we shake hands he jumps in his truck off to the ranch we go he's got this horse tied to a post and he gets on him and rides him and everything and he was okay and Jim looks at me and says you know he's he's probably not as good as that other horse and I'd taken Copper Jade out of the trailer and we'd put him in a stall for a while because we'd come clear from Diamond Bar California Southern California all the way up to Marysville but anyway, Copper J was the kind of horse you could do anything to. I mean, when you flip the rope over him and throw him in the trailer, he's just like a slave. I mean, he never, ever resisted anything in his life. We're getting ready to leave. I didn't really like the horse. Jim told me, nah, he's not as good a horse as, you know, I said he was. And so anyway, I, we're going to leave. I get Copper J. <laughs> I bring him to the trailer. <coughs> he won't load. <laughs> <laughs> I kid you not. He won't get in the trailer. Now this is a horse you throw the rope over him. And Jim's standing there and this is a bad cat and he'd had some real bad woman problems and been in jail and and he, he's looking at me and he's got his hat down there like this. He says, give me that rope. This horse sticks his nose in this guy's chest. And they stand there for a little while. And in the trailer he goes. It was the damnedest thing I've ever seen. <laughs> I'll be damned. Wow. Here's a bad cat. And that horse loved him. Oh. I'll be now, dead. that makes no sense in my mind. <laughs> but you saw it. But I saw it. Huh. Wow. And you're still... So, how did you not marry the, the <laughs> lady? <laughs> Julie? The heiress. Yeah. 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 You know, she is a wonderful girl, but she was crazier than hell. <laughs> <laughs> so you yeah. opted for the prettiest one. 
you know, that's another completely different story. <laughs> I was going to say, I don't think Carol was born yet. No. So. No. <laughs> <laughs> I met Carol by fluke. I mean, Carol was working for Tim Whitney in California. Oh, really? Yeah. See, Tim Tim was one of my customers. You know, you ever know Tim? I heard of him. Okay. Tim and I are the same age. Tim used to ride with Clyde Kennedy. And then Tim... Um, but and in the show circuit, we were the same age when when we were doing the Pacific Coast and all that stuff. We'd compete. Of course, he had livestock, endless livestock, Q stick and all these great horses, and uh, he 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 won a ton. And at that time, Tim kind of let everybody know that you know he he was the he was the guy. He was good. Yeah, he was good. And had lots of money and this and that. But anyway, later on in years, when I was training horses, Tim would come up to my place, and he might buy ten head of horses from me. He'd buy me out of every broke horse I had. And after he rode with Clyde Kennedy as a kid, he had a lot of horses in training with Bob Knutson. And as far as I'm concerned, Bob Knutson's a hell of a hand. I mean, his horses were legit. Um, He's down here in Stephenville now, huh? Yeah. Yep. And I'm gonna, Bob Knutson was a... Yeah, we've heard that a lot. Oh, yep. he... Last year, he put something on Facebook where he was digging post holes with his shirt off. Yeah. <laughs> he was a purist in a way, but not. You know what I mean? Um, and But anyway, I think Bob and Patty were having trouble and everything, and Tim was buying horses from me. And so I got a couple of Bob Knudsen's horses, Pepper Angel, who was a cutting horse, and... Um, there was a cow horse mare, and, and he trained them, and I, I just put tweaked them a little bit, put a little more of my deal on them, but they were trained. I mean, I, I, I can't take credit for those. But that's when, that's when um, uh, Tim and I kind of got hooked up, and I won on those horses, and, and then Tim started coming up and buying all kinds of youth horses from me, and they were winning, and... Then he'd talk me into flying down there and helping him, and he had Curtis Slayton working for him, and you know sold him a pleasure fraternity horse, and they won Santa Rosa, which was the big pleasure fraternity. And you're still in California. Me? Yeah, I'm still in Washington. Washington. Yeah, still in Washington. I'm still in Washington. Still single. Um. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Singlish. Yeah. So, Carol's your first? No. Second wife? Yes. When do you get the first one? Well, the first, After the, the first one, uh, you know, I might have been married because the first one is um, uh, a young lady that brought a horse for me for training and... Uh, I had 60 horses in training and five people working for me, and she would cook me dinner. 
and she's probably a nice lady and but you know on those <laughs> most likely well it's a long story that we don't want to get into well that's why we're here yeah no, i like it no but anyway we we've we, talked way too much about are horses. you like 20 ish yeah i'm in my middle mid 20s mid 20s and i'm rolling i mean i'm i'm rolling and I mean, when there's a when there's a kids class, there'll be 20 in it, and 15 of them are mine. Yours, yeah. And I'm believing it. And yeah, <laughs> you know, we all have those days where we believe that you know, we're it. Yeah, we're it. And uh, but you still don't have a camel hair. No, jacket. no, I wasn't into that. I was, I was into, I was into buying motorcycles and going fast. Hey, now we're hey, talking. Man. What about motorcycles? Well, I did a little motorcycle stint. Yeah, I did love those yeah, things. But they, they, they weren't dirt bikes. They were street bikes. That's what I was. Yeah, me too. Yeah, speed. But anyway, so like Harley's, yeah, or yeah, several. Hmm. Build them. You built them? I, Had them built. No, I, I, we, it was a collaboration. Collaboration? I, I, need, I got one I need to do a work on. Then you come well, up. I tried to buy that motorcycle from you and you wouldn't sell it. Well, I, I, I have recently come into another motorcycle, yeah. so I might be a little more easy to talk into but the other if, one. If, if you want to skip, skip around, my last motorcycle, I, my last Harley, I had sold the saddle to a gal and she had tried it out and called me and said I want it and I says well I'll jump on my Harley and I'll go to your place and you can give me the money we're good 2500 bucks okay for this saddle it was a Jedlica Ooh, fancy because we well we all rode Jedlicas and then we went to Shoop's because Shoop moved away from Jedlica and Shoop was the guy that was making Jedlicas. But anyway, so I jump on my Harley. It's about 5.30 in the afternoon, going through Bellevue. It's busy. I go visit with her. We have a beer. Get my 2500 bucks. stick it in my wallet. I take off. I'm going down the street, and it is a two-lane road with a center turn lane and i'm just putting along it's it's a rare beautiful day it's not raining <laughs> <laughs> and i see out in front of me a car that's making a left-hand turn and i start to grab a hold of my brakes She's gonna go, she changes her mind, and she stops. Oh. And then takes off. And my front fork, it, I'll never forget it to this day, it was a baby blue Volvo with wraparound <laughs> bumpers. And my front fork caught that rear bumper and ejected me over the top of her car. Now, I don't know what plans God's got for me, but he's got something 
that I need to do yet. <laughs> I went over her car and into the ditch, and the ditch it was a grass ditch. Whew. And, and because of riding horses, you don't go blank. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. I mean, we ride horses and we go here and there, and we don't have that moment of hesitation. Fortunately, I wasn't going 100 miles an hour. I was just cruising. And I saw her, and I started to apply my brakes, and then she changed her mind and did all that. But anyway, I am face down in the ditch, and the next thing I remember is I'm rolling, I'm laying there thinking, okay, what is going to hurt really bad? I'm waiting for that feeling, you know? Mm -hmm. And I roll over, and here is this woman. She's got away 350 pounds. <laughs> And she's got a moo-moo on. <laughs> you know what a moo-moo is? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And she's standing over me sobbing. <laughs> she thinks she's killed me. <laughs> okay? She is pulled over to the side. Now all the traffic's stopping because it's about, you know, everybody's getting off work. It's a big deal. Of course, I roll over and see her, and now I'm really scared. <laughs> I think not. She's tried to kill me once. Now she's going to try to kill me again. <laughs> and she is just absolutely in a. I mean, she is hysterical. She's hysterical. I am okay. I got a few rub marks on me and stuff and grass stuff. I'm cool. But this road, there were houses on this side and there was a cliff on this side. And if you've ever been to Washington, there's trees everywhere. So this cliff has trees going up, okay? I laid that, I mean, that motorcycle went down. She's off the road. Of course, the, the police are coming. You know, because the motorcycle's in the middle of the road. The ambulance is coming. I'm fine. But when she hit me and I went over the top of her, it popped my wallet out. There was $2,500 cash in there. And we searched the police. <laughs> oh, no. And I know that that wallet is still down on that cliff somewhere in the woods <laughs> with my 2500 bucks in it because i couldn't show them a driver's license or anything and of course they said well what's your name and they looked it up and they said yeah you're in door you, you you're good they looked for an hour and i did too because there was 2500 <laughs> but anyway that motorcycle was totaled Oh, it was total. But I had insurance. Of course, her insurance paid for everything. And I took that Harley and I went to my buddies and we stripped that thing down and extended it and raked it and we put more cool stuff on that for nothing. And you know something? Now, I'd rode from Seattle to LA. I mean, I'd made some long trips. And I rode that for about a year, and I, that was my second wreck that I had had. And I had a buddy lose a foot. I mean, we found his foot in the shoe. 
<laughs> type deal. Lucky. <laughs> yeah. I mean, his, it was on the ground and he lost his foot. Mm -hmm. But for some reason, I was done. And I parked that motorcycle in, in my lower barn there at Eden Farms, last place I was at. And it was in the old wash rack there, kind of like yours was sitting. That's why yep. when I walked in there and saw it, it was just like mine. And it sat there for a year and a half. Now, this is the stupid part. <laughs> it sat there, and that's when I kind of met Carol and stuff. And, of course, I spilled my guts about riding. And she says, I'm never riding with you, and blah, 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 blah. She, and she finally said, why don't you just sell that thing? And I said, you know, I'm, I'm done with it. I think I'm going to sell it. I put an ad in the newspaper for $3,500. Now, this motorcycle is like brand new. And it is... It's rebuilt since the wreck. Oh. And you haven't rode oh, it much. it is. So it's worth... It's worth fifteen grand. <laughs> I have a kid come out. We pull it out of there, wipe the dust off, kickstart that son of a gun. You know, I tweaked with it a little bit, got it started, because he said he was coming. He kickstarted. He says, what do you want for it? And I told him, and he says, he says, don't sell it. He says, I don't have the money. I'm going to get the money. Don't sell it. I'll be right back. <laughs> and that has irritated me. <laughs> All those years. That, that I see you have to let go of it. I left ten grand on the table. <laughs> and you lost twenty five hundred out of your pocket. Yeah, I know. <laughs> you left yeah, way more than that. Yeah, we can talk about all the horse things and all the things I didn't done, should have done, wish I'd have done. That still holds with me. It seems just, to seems to gnaw at you a little. Oh, it's just, just a just a tick. It makes me angry. <laughs> <laughs> underpricing burns right uh, <laughs> and i i mean i how many times can i kick myself you know <laughs> two more for sure <laughs> <laughs> so anyway that was the end of my you know. and every once in a while somebody will come by you know uh Ron Lane wanted to buy a Harley, and I heard of one, and it was really built really good. And I said, get in the truck. And we went and looked at it, and Ron's standing there. And I think Ron was just thinking he wanted to have one, but not really. And I said, well, are you going to look at it, or are we going to start it and ride it? Right. And he said, well, um, so I kicked it over, and it had one of them high compressions, so you got to release the compression because yeah. it won't kick. You know, I mean, it won't start up. Yeah. I started that sucker off. I left. <laughs> See you later. Yeah. About 30 minutes later, I came back and I said, Ron, you need to buy this motorcycle. He didn't. <laughs> yeah, mine's got those compression. Oh, yeah. Buttons. Oh, yeah. 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 You yeah. might own one more. I don't know if. Hey, I got one you'd like, probably. Not Carol's that. heard enough stories about some of the bad times that. You know, I did 110 miles an hour on a Harley one time around an S-curve, and I was testing out to see if I wanted to buy it, and, and the front end was loose. There's another time that God, 
there is something I'm going to do special. It may be not might be horses. this conversation. It, it's, it might have been this. Might not even be horses or anything. But he saved I, you. I have done some stupid things. <laughs> let's, Did you wreck let's go, it? Let's go down that path. I didn't wreck it, but it was shaking, and the and the bugs were hitting me like BBs <laughs> in my face. <laughs> and I'm doing 110, just seeing if I can die. <laughs> just check it. Yeah. And I went 110, you know, but it was in a straight line. This is I could see a long ways. There was no S curve to this it. This was, you know, I I think about it and it makes me nervous that I got away with that. Yeah, we all get away with a little bit. Yeah. I had one of them crotch rockets for a little while. Oh, I tried. Oh. A, I tried a Kamasabi. Did you? Oh, yeah. what a Kamasabi? Yeah, <laughs> I know what he meant. You know, I <laughs> I kept it about 60 days brand new and. I had to go back to my Harleys. Well, mine was cheap. <laughs> this is my buddy's. And I, he left it at my house and I wrecked it, so I bought it from him. <laughs> and then <laughs> I got to driving that thing and oh my God. It felt like at 70 you'd just fall over. You know, too slow. <laughs> so, oh, I was I going down the highway. I can imagine you on one of those. Oh. Yep, I did love that thing. You're one of those guys, too. You're like the guy that's coming up the white line between two cars. I mean, mm. rubbing rubbing your handlebars on the mirrors as they come by. Just a little. <laughs> John Ward's got a Jaguar, and he says, hey, because he thought it would be cool, I'll, I'll race you for pinks. I'm like, you're on. My bike costs 1500 His <laughs> Jaguar's worth like 15000 I'm like, you are on. And then he backed out on me. But we raced anyways because he thought he was going to get ahead of me. And then with the car, he could block the bike. But he couldn't get ahead of me. Not off the line. Not nowhere. It was a six-speed, wasn't it? Uh, yeah. What the he heck? didn't know. He thought he had four. Uh, whatever. <laughs> yeah. No. So I pass and I beat him and I get on the freeway and I'm just going home and I'm kind of, you know, after the race, I'm kind of going and I'm passing trucks and stuff. I'm on Highway 99. That's pretty good. This is fun. And I look down and I'm doing 135 miles an hour. And I thought, you know what? It didn't feel like I was doing 50. But you know how I I like to ride them? Here. That's, I'm ready for that. I, this is, you can put Those were road. just so expensive at that point in my life, <laughs> I couldn't get one. Not if you build them yourself. <laughs> my mechanical skills well, When can were you be building bikes up? and yeah. training horses? Like, By I don't know way, what part of this, like, I would love to know how to work on a motorcycle, but I, there's not enough how'd time you in even? Well, it started when I was in high school. And the last, the last, uh, last half of my senior year, um, there were I had a couple of buddies that were into the motorcycles, and they were quite a bit older than I was, and they they rented a house in Kirkland there, and I moved in, and that's where we that's where I learned the bike skills and stuff. So when you got done working horses, you just went back there to the house. And- yeah. Well, I was still in high school then, and I was riding a few horses. But we'd go back there in the evenings. We'd and we, we had we had, we had the frame on the on a milk cart, wooden milk, oh, milk right. crate. Yeah. And we were just little studying it. Right. You know. Tinkering. Yeah. I like it. Yeah. 
That's, That's what we did. Hey, Chris, I couldn't help but notice when I was over at your house riding the other day, how incredible your ground was, both inside in the cutting pin and outside in the run-by pin. We keep that crown nice and even with our arena works, drags, and water wagons. And Randy Snodgrass down there in Joshua, Texas, he does a great job. He comes out and makes sure I've got everything I need. He'll help me get that arena set up, the drag set up to fit each pin. Show me how to, I mean, he's super hands-on, does a great job. You can call him for any of your consulting needs as well. That's one of the biggest things about having a good drag is having someone you can call and know how to run it. Well, that's it. Drag's no better. It's like a bridle, Russell. If you don't know how to run it, it doesn't do you no right. good. You can go buy you a $500 better hackamore, and if you don't know how to run the rascal, I mean, you, you might as well have bought you a $10 deal down at the feed store. And they've got drags to fit every budget and every discipline's needs. My family's trusted Arena Works for three generations. My grandfather, my mom, my dad, my uncles. I've known Randy longer than he's had his son, William, who will also help you out down there. The fact they've been in business that long, Chris, attests to the amount of effort they put into it and how trusted they are. If they were putting out a bad product, they'd be done by now. You're darn right. Check them out at snodgrassequipment.com. Or you can email them at arenaworksinfo at sbcglobal.net. And that is A-R-E-N-A-W-E-R-K-S info info at sbcglobal.net don't be afraid to give them a call at 817-645-5200 that's 817-645-5200 and don't be afraid to check out their number and their email address in our show notes did we meet carol no carol carol who (laughs) never heard of her okay oh hey you're not divorced yet no. How'd that come about? Uh, we Didn't did, the two overlap a little? We... <laughs> <laughs> he knows too much. <laughs> um, and we're back with Steve Metcalf. <laughs> <laughs> we have rendered him speechless. Yeah. So, anyway, I... Tim, uh, uh, Tim Whitney, he'd buy these horses and then he'd get them down there and he'd say, hey, Steve, would you fly down? I'll send you a ticket. I'll pay you this amount of money. And uh, would you come down and get these horses squared away and da-da-da-da-da. So anyway, the... All right. Hold on. We're going to have to extend our break. Okay. Yeah. We didn't say enough. We, we got to feed you. And we're back with <laughs> Steve Metcalf. <laughs> So how'd that divorcing go? Oh, that, we did it ourselves. <laughs> really? No lawyers? No lawyers. We filled out the stuff. We went to court because you have to. And the judge looked at me and he said, Mr. Metcalf, he says, do you really want to give her all that stuff? And I said, sir, your honor. I said, I want my truck, my trailer, my horses, my equipment. I gave her a house. I gave her two pieces of property. And he says, okay. And I said, I have the ability to make money. I'm done. Off I went. Wow. And how long were you all married? <clears throat> we lived together a year and a half. And we were married a year and a half. I mean, if I had done it a little sooner, it would have been annulled. 
You know, it, wow. it, it, it was poor on my part. I was just trying to hide. You know, she cooked me dinner. I could go to the house, and you know, it it it, it was all on me. You know. No kids. Oh God, no. <laughs> Praise the Lord. Another one of God's gifts. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> You weren't ready for kids that early in your life, oh, anyway. I know. Were you? Were you no. Hell no. No. How old were you when you got divorced? Oh gosh, I don't know. I was, you know, I don't know. I was thirty-ish. Yeah, maybe. Oh. You know, I did. I just uh... rendered you speechless again. Well, well, the the problem was, and I'll try not to take this too long but the only thing I got out of it besides what I came into it with is we had just what we had done is we had bought a house in five acres and and I mean I got 60 horses in training I'm I'm making big money and I'm trading horses I mean I'm rolling big dog in a little pond And there's a there's 11 acres somewhere. We go look at it. We buy it. Well, in those days, if you could buy it, put it down, um, and if you sold it, and they gave you a large down, and you carried the contract, versus having them go through the bank, say interest rates were three percent. Let's say just for a number. Well, you could charge 5% if you were going to play banker. So we're getting a payment. But anyway, we bought we bought nine acres. We put the money down. We're making payments. A year later, somebody came along and off, offered us double what we had paid for that nine acres. We sold it. Carried the contract. So, and the whole secret to that in those days was get enough down to where if they... Folded. Folded, it doesn't make any difference. Right, you just sell the thing again. Yeah. Or you still got yeah. it or whatever. You're gonna make you're gonna even make more money. Yeah. So same, anyway we same did, rules apply today. We did think. that, we took the big down and we bought eleven acres. A year later. One of them was a year and a half and one of them was a year. Somebody came and we doubled our money again. Oh. Y'all should have stayed married. Y'all could have just kept doubling it up. She you know what it. they say though, divorces, so, divorces are expensive because they're worth it. Yeah. <laughs> so, any, so anyway, then we bought 10 acres, two five, or 10 acres, and there was, a, there was a third five. We put money down on the 10 acres and we put a thousand down on another five to have 15 acres and take and had a year to decide whether we wanted it or not and then we got divorced and out of that i gave her the house the five acres and the two pieces of property that were income property and i kept the ten and the five that we were just starting to pay on i wanted that I gave her the income, and I. Are you guys still friends I, today? 
Oh, God, no. No. <laughs> and, well, it sounds like everything's on pretty good terms. Oh, no, 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 no. Oh. Here's the bad part. So, anyway, so I've got 10 acres. Well, less than a year later, I take up the, the other five and buy it. So, I got 15 acres. So I'm gonna go out there, and and it's beautiful. It's you have a panoramic view of the Cascade Mountain Range. I mean, it, it's a beautiful piece of property. You got 150 acres of Scott Paper Company on one side, and you got 200 acres of school district land on the other side. We're we're secluded, and it's beautiful, and it's up on a mountain. And you go out there and have a cup of coffee, and you can see the whole Cascade Mountain Range right there. I mean, I'm 60 miles from the summit. Million dollar view. 60 miles from the summit of Stevens Pass. Oh, nice. And so anyway, Carol and I build a house out there because we're together now. And if you want me to back up to how Carol Well, we will in a minute. Yeah. Okay. We build a house out there. We're living happily ever after. We go six miles into the main ranch which is 52 acres to work every day and so many years later for nine years i've wanted to move i am sick of the rain i'm sick of going to the same horse shows i'm sick of staring at the cascade mountains i it it is I'm to the point where I want to quit. To the point where I didn't realize that I was training horses, and I'm winning, but I'm training horses angry. It's the only way I can get through the day. Sure. I got 60 horses in training. I'm selling horses. We have pleasure horses. We have all around horses. We have rainers. We have cow horses. We have cutters. And we work from seven in the morning till 11 o'clock at night every night. And for nine years, we plan for a move. We're trying to decide where we want to move. I said, if you want to go to California, you know, because we had customers from California, we had customers in Florida, we had Roseanne Sternberg in England. And Carol says, I don't want to go to California. California is ruined, and that's where I'm from, and I just hate it, and it makes me sick because she already had realized what was happening in California. Uh -huh. and, and it made her sick because it's sad because it's the most beautiful state in yep. the Union, and it just sucks. Yes. It just, and I remember going there and buying horses off ranches and the way it was because I showed down there a lot and it made me ill and we knew if we moved to california that we could only afford 15 acres and we'd be working like crazy to try to make ends meet believe it or not i wanted to move to reno mm. not reno but Carson City. Right. I said, mm -hmm. look, it, we can move to Carson City. We're close to California. We go to the Sun Circuit. We go here. We go there. It's not a bad drive. Our people can fly in cheap. They can be entertained at Reno, come out, ride their horses. I really like Carson City. And then we looked at Prescott. 
because I didn't want to be in Scottsdale because I wanted to be just out a little ways to where you had, you know, just wasn't desert. And, and Frank Merrill was a customer of mine. And because every year when we go to the World Show, we'd stay at Frank's for a week before we'd move into the World Show. And we would, we, I had horses in training for Frank and in Washington. And we would stay there and gallop on the track and blow them all out. And by the time we moved into the World Show, those horses were like comatose. And Frank came to me and he said, where my racetrack is, this is before they built the indoor arena there yep. at uh, Wimbledon Stud. Yep. He said, I'll give you that 20 acres if you'll move here. I'll give it to you. You can build whatever you want on it if you'll, if you'll move here. And we got to thinking. And, and then we got to looking around and then Tom Chown and, a few, and Tim McQuay. We were good friends with Tim, good friends with Tom at that time. Is this what's irritating your ex-wife? I thought you were going to tell us how, why you weren't friends with your ex-wife anymore. Oh, let's just bypass that. <laughs> why do no they always way. get evasive on I these know. divorce questions? I was wait, I've been waiting for, I'm like, this is a big setup for why the ex-wife is pissed. I know, I feel, it faded away, didn't it? Faded away. I, I don't, I don't want to talk about what, <laughs> what really happened with it. We, she's probably a nice person. We didn't get, we didn't fit. <laughs> okay. You know. But your divorce seems so amicable. Yeah, that was the question because everything was lovely and everybody. I was, I was done. She wasn't. I don't know. <laughs> I don't care. <laughs> but if you want to go back but to that, but you guys split it uh, without lawyers I, or anything. I was done. I said, "You fill out the stuff. We'll go to the judge." I'm done. This is what I want. Uh, you know, I want my my paintings, and this is what I want. And I want my horses, and I want my equipment. And what kind of paintings? Well, we had an art gallery. What? Really? Yeah, we had an art gallery and a. Did you uh, paint them? No, 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 no. These were artists. Oh, well, you strike me as an artist type. Artist. Yeah. Autistic? Artistic. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but, it, but anyway, so in me going down there and looking around, I wanted to buy Belmar Farms, which was owned by D. Wayne Lucas. And it was on the other side of the river from Frank. It was yep. 186 acres. Yeah, I know that place right there over there towards Lexington. Yep. 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 That's what I wanted to buy. Uh -huh. I videoed the place we're at now. It had a nicer house. It was on the mainstream of things. I said, we're not going to be here a long time, but we need to be visible. Because I had done three different pieces of property where the town grew up around you, and you make a lot more money selling your land than you do training horses. And I came home, showed Carol the videos, and then she came down and I stayed and she liked 
that place and we ended up buying it. But some real estate, a gal that was in the real estate business, the reason we were motivated to move was because we'd built a house and we were living happily ever after and I wasn't happy. And this was how long after the divorce? Nine years. Nine years. It was nine years later? He said he was. Or you moved to Texas nine years well, later after the we, divorce. We've been in Texas 26 years. So 26 years minus six. Well, or, where I was going, I'm sure you could tell, and that's why you're diverting me, is how long <laughs> after the divorce before you and Carol were living, looking at the Cascade Mountains, drinking your coffee of a morning together. And I'm wondering if this might have a reason as to why the divorce wasn't as amicable as it may have sounded. No. She, <laughs> no. <laughs> <laughs> she wasn't out of school yet. Yeah. <laughs> Go pick her up from cheerleader practice? You know, you, know, you always want to get in the smut, don't you? <laughs> well, yeah, I'm trying to be a real journalist here. Yeah. <laughs> Is that NBC or ABC? All the above. All the above. It's all, it's all fiction. I mean, nobody pays any attention yeah, to it. It's, it's no big deal. It's just, in your, it's just for the ratings. So anyway, a real estate agent came in and wanted to buy our place and they wanted to own it. And they said, we want you out in six months. And it was a sign and we went boom and we'll take it and they offered us a lot of money for it. And we decided on the little old place we got down there. Didn't, uh, did you buy that from Jim Osborne? Yes. Yep. Yep. That was the first time I went to that place yeah. and went to Jim's. And, yeah. was, and you thought it was going to be short term and you're still there. Still there. Well, we, I tried. I bought 146 acres in Kalisburg, but it didn't work out. Oh, you're, you're the man. But anyway, so getting back to how I met Carol, that was the original yeah. deal. That's what we need to know. Okay. Ben. Pay attention. When I was flying down to Santa Barbara to see Tim and help him with his horses, Carol was working for Tim. Okay? Another help thief. Huh. Just like Ben Baldus. <laughs> <laughs> and I went down there and helped Curtis Layton and the the Santa Barbara Junior Amateur Show on a horse that I'd trained, and he did well. But anyway, that next year, I had to go to, Arizona had a snaffle bit fraternity at that time. I had a, had a derby, mm. had a derby. And it was at the old Western town there in Arizona. That's when, um, and anyway, so I, I had town charger for that. I had horses to go to the Cow Palace, and I had horses to go to the Santa Barbara Junior Amateur Show. Kids, non-pros, and open horses. So I was going to go to four, three or four shows in Southern California and Northern California. And Tim, being the smart guy he is, he says, look it. He called me up and he says, I got horses that, you know, kids that need your help and horses you bought from me. And I bought 15 horses from you over the last two years. He says, I'll tell you what. He said, if you're coming to those four shows, 
he says, you come down here, I will empty the lower barn. And his place was beautiful. It was on three different levels and it was beautiful. He says, I'll empty that barn and give you that barn for your horses. And I had a big semi rig, bigger than yours. It's going to get personal. And he said, he said, I'll, I know a guy that's got a ranch that's got cattle just north of Santa Barbara. And he said, you do those four shows and you pencil it out. He'd already penciled it out. You'll save your customers so much money in hauling if you just stay down here. And he says, not only will I give you that barn for nothing, but he says, I have a beach house on Santa Claus Lane. And I don't know if you've ever been mm -hmm. to Santa He says, I'll give you the beach house to stay in, in Santa Claus Lane for the month. Nothing. That could be worse. So I had five people working for me. I kind of milled it around, set it up, talked to all my customers. They were thrilled because mileage is, you know, expensive. They can come down, you know, a few days before, be in Santa Barbara and all that. So I did it. And I went down there and helped Curtis and helped Carol. And I had Sir Wrangler with me. I was going to show him at the Cow Palace. And Sir Wrangler in the Appy world is kind of a legend, I guess, as far as a sire and everything. And he was a four-year-old that year. And I had Town Charger for the Snaffle Bit deal, and I had some more horses for Arizona, and then I had a whole group of non-pro and kids' horses for the Jan... The now, was Tim still riding in these days? No, Tim was paralyzed. Uh -oh. Okay, that's what I was kind of getting at. Yeah, Tim, I mean, was, Tim had been paralyzed since he was 19 years old. Oh, no kidding. He, he had a kid that Perth. worked for him, and he, you know, in those days, everybody... When he was that age, they had a van, a one-ton truck with a box on it, and you could haul four head of horses in it. Uh, Greg, Greg had one. Mm -hmm. Greg Ward had one. And he had one of those, and it had a sleeper in it, and the kid fell asleep and hit a tree, and Tim was in the sleeper, and the horses came through the sleeper and mm. broke his neck. And... Mm. Tim being wealthy, good-looking guy, winning everything, went from that to being paralyzed from the neck down. Yeah. Oh. And you can say all you want about Tim Whitney um, and, you know, in his younger days being arrogant, but I think all of us in our younger days had moments of being arrogant. That guy picked himself up was in a wheelchair and gave lessons and taught kids how to ride and he was difficult and temperamental but kudos to him yeah well that's what i remember. i mean when i was out there at todd's he was still coming i mean he was in full force coming in quarter horse shows and everything yes. but he was in a wheelchair yes. and so when you were talking about him earlier i was not aware of what age that that happened to yeah. him if that was 19. something that happened later wow yeah. Wow. Yeah. And I mean, he was rolling. And, um, and rolled for a long time. A long time. Long time. Tim was my best man at my, my no wedding. No kidding. When Carol and I got married. 
hmm. since he facilitated that whole relationship. Well, and since then you I, stole her from him. Well, she had a year contract, and when her contract was up, he had bought some more horses from me, and there was a little horse he had, a young horse that he didn't like that I wanted to buy, and so Carol's contract was up with him because he always had a contract with everybody that worked for him. And I made a deal with Carol to haul those horses up, that horse up, and pick up. And she got there and she said, I'm looking for a job. And I says, well, did you quit Tim? And he said, no, my contract's up. And I says, I'm looking for a job. So we sat down and negotiated. <laughs> and she got her a job. She got her a job. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> I was still married. Oh, so you volunteered that piece of information. You knew it was coming. I was still married at that time because I remember that because I said there's, you know, it's a job, period. But look at these Cascade Mountains. <laughs> <laughs> I hadn't moved out there yet. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, so that that's how I met Carol. Uh-huh. And Carol was Miss Rodeo Queen of California. She won the Salinas Rodeo, and I mean, she she had her own, and her and and you know, Miss Rawls grew up together. The first time I met Patty Rawls, Carol took me out to Sway Park, and to show me around, because that's where she learned to ride from a lady trainer out there, and there's Patty. And Patty's on a little buckskin gilding riding around. And Patty has not changed. <laughs> <laughs> and Carol and her talk, and she comes over to the fence on this horse, and, and Carol says, this is Steve Metcalf, blah, 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 blah. And Patty says, well, I'm Patty, I'm Patty Pollard. Pollard, yeah. And... Uh, and I said, I like your little horse, how's he bred? And she says, well, he's by Doc Tom Tucker. And I says, well, I, and I had had, I had had quite a few Doc Tom Tuckers. I got along with them really well. And they were real thinkers and I, we'd won a lot of stuff on them. And uh, I said, well, I said, he's a cute little horse. He is a little bitty thing. And he says, uh, he's for sale, Patty says. You wanna buy him? And I says, well, I don't think so, but he's a cute little horse. That was my introductory to <laughs> Patty Pollard. That was it? Uh, that, was buy the, the horse? that was the beginning. No, I did not buy the horse. Mm. 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 Uh, no, so Patty, that's I just thought that might have been a little more colorful, Steve. Nope. But anyway. I that, start. Yeah. But anyway, that's how I met Carol Carter. Carter. Mm. I've never known her as anything but Steve, uh, Carol Metcalf. Carol Carter. I'll be dang. Hence the name yeah. of said progeny. I'll be darned. Yeah. Didn't put that one together. So how long are you guys married before you have Carter Metcalf? Um, well, we lived together for nine years. Mm. Off and on. I mean... I was still trying to get over the 
failure of my divorce. <laughs> I can't believe you said that with a straight face. <laughs> I'm impressed, but I can't believe you got it done. <laughs> I trade horses for a living. <laughs> and, uh, and then we got married at the Santa Maria Inn. Santa Maria. Oh, been and there. Tim was the best man. And uh, and then two years after we were married, I tricked Carol and she got pregnant. <laughs> <laughs> 11 years, that's pretty good. We've been together 40, we've been married, um, let's see, 32. 32 we've, years. Ben, we've been edit together. That, edit that. We don't want anybody knowing how old we, Carol is. We've been together 41 years. Playing, she, was playing. she was 10. She was 10. Ben doesn't know what to think anymore. He's I, just like, I, I, don't, I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> She's one of my favorite people oh, at my the God. horse show. Wow. I love seeing her. Every time. Yep, she's something else. I don't How know. She must be. Carter? I think she's applied for sainthood just from being married to Steve for so long. <laughs> she didn't even have to apply. They sent her an accepted right? letter. Yeah. <laughs> What's this letter from the Vatican? <laughs> <laughs> oh, God. Okay. We're done? <laughs> That's the end of my life. <laughs> oh my goodness. No, heck no. So talk to us about Tony Amaral a little bit. Yeah, not a lot of people I mean, have as much insight. Oh God. I mean, from one of the framers of our industry, really. Yeah. And we don't get much firsthand knowledge. By golly, I want to tell you. By golly. Because that's how we started everything. <laughs> By golly. Grab his nose. <laughs> so I'll give you I'll give you a a, a little story about Tony. Because my dad was good friends with Tony, and then Tony Garcia, who I worked for, was good friends with Tony. I knew Tony Amarell before I knew Tony Garcia. But I was very young, so I was kind of oblivious. But Tony and Skid, When I went out on my own, I called Tony and I said, I need about four or five head of horses. And he would tell me, by golly, he says, I got this and I got, this. it was kind of like talking to Benny, only Tony Amarell was original. And, and Benny was too, but he came out. But a lot of Benny's mannerisms. He picked up. Oh, yes. But it's it's a TA's was really rich. I mean, not in. I'm not saying that in a negative way because I love Benny Catrone. But anyway, so I am. This is what I'm doing. I'm hustling. I've got me a new a new used Miley six horse steel trailer two two and two. It's thirty some feet long. And I got a Ford truck, dually, but it all it is is a single cab, no bed. It's like a tractor. 
okay? And I gotta make, it's the first thing I've ever borrowed money to buy. In fact, there's a story to that. I went to the bank and I wanted to borrow money to buy this rig because I've got a lot of horses in training and I gotta transport them. And I was a believer because I came from the old school that you don't buy anything unless you can afford it and that means you go pay for it. I had no credit. Everything that I've ever that's owned. That's terrible advice. I mean, that's te- that's what I that's the way I was too. It's terrible advice. Then when you need to buy something for real, yep. you can't buy nothing. So I'm sitting in there with this banker saying that I need to borrow some money to buy this rig, and it's going to make its payments. And I'm explaining to him how it's going to pay its way. And he said, Steve, he says, I, you're you're sincere, and I believe it, and you're honest. And but he says you have no credit. He says. You have a brand new Camaro and you paid cash for it. I said, well, that's because I was always taught that if I want something, you earn enough money. And when you earn enough money to buy it, if you still want it, then you buy it. And half the time, by the time you get there and you want it, you don't want it anymore. Right. Save the money. Save the money. And about that time, a gentleman walks in there, his name's Hugo Engel, and he's a very good customer of my father's. And unbeknownst to me, he sits on the board of the bank. Now, I don't know if my dad set it up, because my dad was the kind of guy, he was a genius on thinking you were raising yourself, but he always had an eye on you. But he never... I always thought that I was doing all this, and he was really very quietly taking no credit whatsoever. Hugo Engel just happens to walk in when I'm fretting about how I'm going to get this rig bought and says, Steve Metcalf, what are you doing in here? And I said, well, I'm trying to buy a rig, and I'm not getting it done, and it's because I've tried to do things right, and da-da-da-da-da, and... And he said, well, tell me about it. And so I told him, and, and he said, he looks up and he goes, Frank, he's the bank, whatever he is, president or manager or whatever. He says, Frank, he says, where do I co-sign? <laughs> <laughs> he said, right here, <laughs> sir. <laughs> I co-signed for that, paid it off in two years, and on the road I went, boy. And I was forever in debt to Hugo Engel, wonderful man. Had horses in training with my dad. And those are the kind of people along the trail that help you out and don't even want to thank you, Mm -hmm. you know? So I would go to a horse show and I might take 30 head of horses and I would make three trips back or four trips, whatever it took to get all those horses back. And Sunday night, I would take the dividers out of that trailer, and I'd go over to a gentleman by the name of Court Sheehan, who was partners on I'm a Tough Two. Garcia's living in Marysville, California now. He has moved to Marysville, California, and has got I'm a Tough Two there and standing him, and he's breeding all kinds of mares and stuff and, and training horses there. And Don Brown's working for him for the third time (laughs) for Garcia yeah and I would Sunday night after I'd been in a show for two weeks 
I would take the dividers out. I would go to Court Sheehan's. He would load me up with brood mares. I would get me a box of them no-dos. <laughs> those capping deals, a thermos of coffee. And some Sour Boys candy. And, and some sandwiches. And I could drive with the gas that I had in that rig, because we didn't have diesels then. I could drive from where I lived to Marysville, California, nonstop. And I would get it and go over them Siskiyous, and that's when them Siskiyous weren't that four-lane highway. It was a meow, <laughs> and, and I would get down to Tony's, and they would unload me, and I'd lay out on the lawn and just sleep, you know? And they'd get me unloaded, and if he didn't have mares to go back to the Northwest, then I would go down to Amarell's. Well, Garcia would want to go with me. So, because I had an order for horses. And in those days, I'd go down to Amarell's, look at the horses. Garcia would be with me. They'd bullshit around, you know, and talk about stuff. And I'd look at the horses, pick out the ones I want. I'd get on, go, go to the phone. We didn't have cell phones then. <laughs> and I would call my customers and say, I found you a mare. This is what she is. I think she'll work for you. They'd put $10,000 in my bank account, and I'd write a check for them. And I'd come back with a full load of new horses, commission checks. Well, I'm doing this pretty regular, and especially in not during breeding season, I just go down to TAs because he's treating me good. He's taking care of me. We had a great relationship. Finally, one day about the third trip, T.A. is kind of acting weird, you know. He's kind of twitchy. And he says, hey, come here a minute. And Garcia's off talking to Rod Weemers or somebody because Rod Weemers worked for him, you know. And he gets me behind the, the little barn he had in the back there, and he says, hey, he says, by golly, he says, we're friends, aren't we? And I said, yeah. And I says, I mean, I've known you since you were a little kid and your dad and everything. He says, by golly, he says, every time you bring Tony down here, he's getting part of your commission. <laughs> 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 he, says, he says, Steve, by now, by golly, I mean, he says, by golly, you ought to trust me. He says, if you want to make a little more money, he says, maybe, maybe you should just bypass Marysville and just come directly here. <laughs> I just figured Garcia was coming down because he wanted to come along. Well, he, every time I buy a horse, he's getting a piece of the action. <laughs> I brought him. I brought him in. <laughs> Tony was feeling sorry for me. <laughs> and you thought you were making all the money. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so that kind of opened up my eyes a little bit. <laughs> So did you spend much time riding with Tony, T.A.? You know, not a ton. No. You know, not like, you know, Bobby was there for a while, Avila, and, and but I was around him a lot. And I and every I went down there a lot and bought a lot of horses, and I'd watch him ride, and he, he was a good man. Yeah. He was a good, he was a good man. He was a, in his day, he was a horseman, and he was really good at a Joaquima. 
And uh, Benny learned the Joaquima from him, the Hackamore. And uh, he was, he was a, and I'm gonna tell you, he, you know, we all talk about Benny being the great trader he was, and Benny and I traded a lot of horses together. There's no better better than T.A. And T.A. traded horses from the East Coast to the West Coast. Huh. And he, he packed, I know for a pack, he, he packed three blank checks from different guys from the East Coast to the West Coast whenever they had a horse. I mean, he's responsible for Oki Leo. He's responsible for win or lose. I mean, when, if you think back to all the horses that man brought out to this country from East Coast to West Coast, it's unbelievable. Mm. And, and he had a partner. And that partner lives in Texas here. And because I'm old, it's embarrassing, but I'm trying to remember his name. <laughs> his, his, his son rides Rainers. Dale Harvey? No. No, 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 no. I'm talking about in his oh. 80s. Jack Brainerd? Jack Brainerd. Mm -hmm. Jack, uh, he just turned 100. Jack Brainerd and Tony Amarell. You have no idea how many horses no those kidding. two men. Really? Oh, yeah, they I just were, seen on Facebook where Jack turned Hondo. They, wow. they. You have no idea how many horses those two men traded from West Coast to East Coast. Mm. They were the guys. Mm. And then Tony was a horseman. Right. Well, you brought up Don Brown. I know you, uh, you and him have been pretty tight. And Don Brown's made me a name that probably a lot of people in my generation just uh, kind of equate to the Hackmore maker. But uh, why don't you shed a little light on that? Well, Don Brown was a horseman before he was ever a Hackmore maker. And the only reason he's a Hackmore maker is because his hips went bad. He had to have him operated on, and he lost his job, and he had to do something, and that's what he did. And I saw Don. We all know less. Yeah. And we all know, you know, I have a lot of admiration for less. But like all of us, if we get one and it don't work out, Usually, by the time it gets to the point where they don't work out, there ain't nothing left. And there's a horse, a gilding, that Les had. <clears throat> and I believe he was at Monterey, and Les went, to <clears throat> went down the fence. And when he went by that cow, that horse jumped out of the arena. <laughs> oh! <laughs> And he did it twice. <laughs> and he was a King Fritz Gilding. And for a very long time, Skip Brown and Les and a bunch of other guys, very quietly, when they got stuff like that, they went to Don Brown. 
for him to fix, take care of, whatever. And when Don moved up to the Northwest, he brought this gilding with him that had jumped out of the pen. Twice. And he showed him at Medford, Oregon in the open bridal. I don't know what he marked, but it was huge. Huh. Wow. And he took that horse. And when he was still down in California, and he was up on the Siskiyous there the first time, when he was a horseman, still is a horseman, but he wasn't braiding. And he took that horse out, and him and his beautiful wife, who I've known longer than I've known Dawn, he had to feed cattle, and it was wintertime. And they took the feed wagon out there, and they had brought all the cows down to the lower valley, and there's, I don't know how many feet of snow on the ground. And he rode that gilding out there, and he rode the baddest, biggest, cow he could find and half-hitched him to a leg so it wouldn't choke her off and was tied hard and fast and he just stepped off and they fed the cows and they drove the tractor away. <laughs> <laughs> and knowing Don, you know, if you've ever been around him, he said, Chrissy's going, nin, 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 now Don, you know, you, you, you. Chrissy, he's either going to live or he's going to die. But he ain't no good. Way either is. way, either way, <laughs> you know. If he's dead, he's no good, and if he lives, then maybe he can make us a little money. They this was morning. They came back that evening, and there were skid marks on <laughs> in this valley. <laughs> they had drug each other around, but he he says, Stevie boy. He says, when I got there, he says, he said. That cow was there, and that rope was tight, and that gilding was here. <laughs> <laughs> and he said, he might make it. <laughs> <laughs> and he took that horse, and he won Medford on him. And then he moved back up the northwest for a little while. And I called him up one day, and I had a cow in a bog. And it was my cow. And I couldn't get him out. And I mean, it, if I had taken the tractor in there, I would have just sunk. And I called Don Brown and I said, Don, I don't know what to do. He says, I guess I just shoot him. And he says, he says, I'll be there in 15 minutes. And he came and he brought that gilding. And I kid you not, this was a nasty Washingtonian black dirt. And he jumped into that bog. And this horse was... I mean, it was beyond his, it was the middle of his back, and he roped that sucker, and that big old gilding drugged that sunbuck out of there, and I mean, that man has no fear. Hmm. To a fault. Wow. To a fault. To a fault. That's what he said. To a fault. Um, I have a lot of stories about Don. He took me on my first two hunts, one a deer and one a black bear. And the youngest one was when I was, was the black bear. And Don Brown's got a 22 
revolver. But it shoots longs. <laughs> is the way he puts it. He still got it. And my first adventure going black bear hunting with him is we went out in the woods and I think my dad had something to do with getting me out there and trying to get me to grow up a little bit. He took me hunting and all he had was that pistol. For 10 years I thought you hunt black bear with a pistol. People thought I was nuts. Because <laughs> that's all I knew. And when I was 16 he took me deer hunting and I was so excited to go because I I was just a horse show brat. I didn't get to go hunting. I, I didn't ranch. I didn't doctor cattle. I mean, I, I was I just a horse show brat. And Dom was going to take me deer hunting. And he took me up in the Cascade Trails. And I'd gone down and I'd saved money and I got me a pair of them rubber lace-up boots. And I had, you know, a down vest on and I had a down jacket on and I had more clothes on than and Don picks me up, and all he's got is a, is a poncho, a plaid wool poncho. <laughs> Looks like Clint Eastwood. Yeah. <laughs> and Don was young, and and back then, and we hit, we go up in the Cascades on them Longin roads, and we get off, and he says, "Okay, let's let's get going." And I've been playing football, I mean, I'm, I'm fit, and I'm good. I think I am. <laughs> and here we are going through the woods in the snow, and Don's like a friggin' grizzly bear. I mean, huge. He's going, and I'm going, and I'm getting hot. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm starting to peel stuff off. And I, now I'm just leaving it, you know. <laughs> I was way overdressed. <laughs> and every once in a while he'd clap, glance back at me, you know, and see if I'm still alive. And, and I'm peeling stuff off. And, I mean, he ran me all over. The, we didn't see one friggin' deer. But he ran me all over that, cow, that Cascade Mountain range. Uh, I, there's still clothes up there, I'm sure. <laughs> Didn't say a word. Didn't say a word about all the clothes I had on or nothing. And and then he took me coon hunting. And I my responsibility was a, Tony and them guys had a bunch of walker hounds. They loved to coon hunt. And I used to feed them. And you know, there's one little light in this big old Quonset hut, and I mean, between trying to fight the rats off for the dog food and the walker <laughs> dogs getting the dog food, but I'd get them fed every day. That was my job. And uh, we're going, we're going coon hunting. And the fish are running, you know, the salmon on the creeks. So there's two pups that I've been taking care of, young dogs. They had taken them out one time, and they're training them, and then he had all of his old, older dogs. And we get up there, and of course I'm pretty excited, you know. And he says, Stevie boy, he says, uh, you take these two pups and you stay on this logging road. And he says, we're going to go down to the river there, take the dogs down there, and, and we'll, we'll get them running. And when they tree something, I'll holler at you, and you bring them pups down because I want to train on them. 
And uh, I said, okay. So I'm up there standing around waiting in there, wow, 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 wow. And all of a sudden they, they got a bow, wow, their tree. Hey, come on down. Well, in Washington, you've got this windfall of second growth timber. I mean, it's brushy, bad, and these pups are going nuts. And they're dragging me down this deal there. And by the time I get down there, I'm bloody. My hands are bloody. My face is bloody because of the windfall and all that. And they've got this coon right by the river there. And they got this coon up on those trees. And the older dogs are bah, wow, wow, and everything. And Don takes the one pup. And they, they latch onto the older dogs, take them away. And he takes the one pup. And he does his little deal he does because he trains dogs i mean he's, tra he's sold dogs for a lot of money bear dogs and yeah lion dogs so avila was up there in your country huh he was in oregon now oh yeah well we showed every weekend together right what about some of that you see, you've seen a lot of generations i guess is my point coming up and talk a little bit about bob for some of these young guys that think they're all that in a bag of chips right now N nobody has a better work ethic smart Business-like, hard-working. Um, I mean, we went down the road side by side forever, and uh, and uh, you know, he just uh, he 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 just outwork you. You know, I I get a kick out of him. He. He'd come to the horse show, his rig would be immaculate. All the horses would have Avila blankets on them, hoods, matching. Uh, I'd come to the horse show with 35 head. I'd be out there until one o'clock in the morning working horses with my whole crew. He'd bring six to eight and by the time I got done at one o'clock in the morning, not only do I not want to, I don't even want to talk to anybody. He'd be done by six. He'd go to dinner. Half the time he might take my customer with him to dinner. <laughs> 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 or somebody else's. And I don't say that in a bad way. And uh, he was businesslike. He was premeditated. He had a plan. Um, I think his first wife was a driving force behind that. And I mean, I think the world of his second wife, um, but she was a driver and, uh, but he was motivated. He was a perfectionist and, uh, he could irritate you at times, but we all irritate each other at times, but he had a business plan. He ran it like a business. And uh, that's why he's had the great success he's had. I know it's been neat to see that guy. I mean, very seldom it seems like in this business do you see somebody go out on top. You know, it's not really a retirement kind of friendly industry. Transition. But he, I mean, like I say, he had himself set up into a situation apparently to where he could do that. And, I mean, you don't, like I say, I mean, he went from, you never remember him not making finals or not doing this. I mean, it just was, I mean, mm -mm. something to be envied, I think, as far as and I'll young you, trainers I'll go. tell you what, where he was really smart, you know. I mean, you know, guys will say Bobby had a big ego, which 
you know, if you're if you're going to be on top, you have to, you have to have a certain amount of ego, self esteem, whatever. Right. It may if you're be. making your living in a competitive but you know field, but you know something, I saw him at our big circuit that we had that used to go 24 hours. I mean, this was a huge circuit. And we had a big rain of paturity there, and they gave away a Donazon saddle. And, and there was a kid there, little skinny kid there, that's working for somebody else and shows a little old nothing guild in there, but has him trained. Bob shown a mare there owned by big money people. You know, everything is set up the way Bob sets it up. Uh, my myself felt like the kid should have won the reign of paternity, and, but Bob won it. And when you look back on it, it was just kind of like, I think we were all cheering for the underdog, you know. And this kid was second. And there was a lot of emotion about it and everything. And when it was all done, and the circuit was over, Bob had hired that little kid, and his name was Todd Bergen. <laughs> wow. Yeah. So Bob went Bergen after it was over and said, you did a really good job on that gilding. And I, I know the gilding because I ended up with him, and he was just, just a horse. But Todd did a good job on him, and uh, Bobby hired him right on the spot and said, you know, you come here. So that's how good Bob was with, you know, you, there's guys that might say, you know, I had a big ego and he this and that and na 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 na. We all, we all have our things. But you know something? He didn't have too big an ego to hire Bergen. Right. And the list goes on. I mean, yeah, he started with a, Tommy St. Hilaire and Tommy St. Hilaire to me was you know, a really good hand, really good hand. He might have not had a lot of desire to go show a lot, but when Bob got stuck with one that was complicated or a little weird, a little twisty, he'd give them to Tom. Tom loved them peely ones. And you can go down through the list of people that book for Bob Avila. And it's heavy. You're only as good as your help. And mm -hmm. he was real good at picking. Well, we had all those youth kids, see? Me and Bruce Gilchrist had all these youth kids going down the road. I mean, I had 30 of them. And Bob would sit back. And we'd be at all these horse shows every weekend. And we're out there and beating our brains out, yelling at kids and stuff. And one would kind of come to the surface a little bit. And he's about 16. And then pretty soon, Bob's over there. Hey, man, what are you doing? Hey, Robbie boys, what, what, what are you up to today? And, and about the time they're 17, Bob's over there, and he says, you know, when you get out of high school, what are your plans? You going to go to college? No. He said, well, if you want a job when you're out of high school. And he was, he, hey, you kudos, boy. He, he had an eye. Horses and people. Yeah, and we has an we, eye. we groomed them and and got like a pretty good little farm system worked out. Oh, it was it was yeah tenacious. Like you said, outworking man. You never saw his rig or horses that they didn't look spectacular. He would polish his rig to a fault. 
We mm. used to give him such a hard time. I mean... Yeah, yeah. people said about me too. <laughs> <laughs> you know, these young... The, and I know things are different and we don't set up drapes and we don't do all this and everything, but... Um, you know, Bob tells stories about uh, when he was working for TA and and skipping lunch so he could afford to get his shirt starched. That's how crazy he was. You know, he he'd miss a meal to make sure that his jeans and and shirts were starched, that he would look present himself well at the horse show. Mm. He made that work. Yeah, he did. Wow! Right on out. Yep. There's a lot. There's a lot. You know, if a guy ever wanted to bit somebody and they're really passionate about being a horseman, be a good guy to talk to. Oh man, yeah. he might charge you. Yeah, <laughs> 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 oh, I heard it. <laughs> there's a book. I got wrote a book. You know, sell you yeah. a copy. Yeah. <laughs> How about our questions, Chris? Well, I was going to talk to him about some of his darn horses. That he's oh, yeah. Like, uh, we were just... The Equistat is very incomplete, I know. But our first one on there was uh, Tammy Tucker in 84. Golly. You remember Tammy Tucker? Yeah. Was that uh, Tanya's sister? No. <laughs> Tammy Tucker. Why is she on there? She's the, the first horse she won on on Equistat. Huh. Well, I sold him to Dell Hendricks. To she went to Arizona. That was uh, um, when he worked for Rancho Surreal. Yeah. Yep. Mm. That is that I sold that mare to them for her. He had bought all them high power the the Docalina mare and all them. And I brought my little mare down there, and I'd cow horsed on her and rained on her, and I showed her at the Sun Circuit, and they, they bought her, and and she ended up showing her more than the other one, <laughs> and that was the first horse that I said, Dell, you can go down the fence on her too if you want to, and he took her down the fence. That was the first horse he ever took down the oh, fence. Oh no, kidding! Wow, that created a monster. Right, and then what about uh, Boots Valentine? I just kind of picked out some. Ones okay. that I recognize. Boots Valentine, when you asked me the two great, I said I've only rode two yeah. great horses in my life. He's the second one. Really? Yeah. Um, Boots Valentine's by Major Bonanza. And out of Beauty Valentine. And Beauty Valentine was a mare by Larbar that was in Canada. Don Brown rode her when he was in Canada. There's quite a few people that rode that mare and Bruce Gilchrist ended up with her bought her for an amateur and they showed her she was a, she wasn't a great show mare but she was really really a nice mare and um, I'm, I'm gonna be bad on names here but she ended up at Sally Hoppy and Sally Hoppy's, gosh, I'm going to be in trouble. Sally Hoppy's daughter used to be married to Darren Stanzik. Okay. 
and they bred her to Major Bonanza. And the first one they got was Boots. And the daughter rode him a little bit with Dick Knight on the ranch. And does anybody know who Dick Knight is here? Oh, you're kidding me. Horseman, horseman. Mm. Really good horseman. Northern California. Mm-hmm. And she was having a lot of trouble with him. And Sally had a pleasure mare with us. At Lori. Daughter's name's Lori. And I don't know what her married name is now. But anyway, I had sold Sally this pleasure mare that we were winning on. And Sally mentioned to me that Lori would really, really like to bring this gilding down because she's having a lot of trouble with him. He's terrified of cattle and da 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 da. So I said, sure, you know, one weekend, you know, because Sally lived in Northern California, Cottonwood. So anyway, she came down, brought this gilding down, and I really liked him. And she wanted to leave him. And she kind of, they kind of wanted to sell him because he just, he just was scared of things. And I'm, I'm sure that if you got a hold of Lori, Lori's story would be different because there was a lot of controversy about this and Lori was mad and so on and so forth. But what I'm telling you is what I perceive to be the truth. <laughs> okay. But anyway, so I rode the horse for a while and I really liked him and he was scared of a cow. I mean, you know, he, you might step into a cow and he might do a little bit and he just might break and leave, okay? But I just kind of babied him along. And at that time I had a kid that kept running his bicycle to my place and wanting a job and he was in high school. And he would come every two days I'd really like a job, Mr. Metcalf, and I'd da-da-da-da-da, da-da-da-da-da, and he just wore me out. <laughs> and I said, I thought to myself, if this kid has rode this bicycle to my place, and I asked him how far it was, and it was a ways, it, I said, I, I'm going to give him a little money and let him work. So I put him to work and, you know, saddling, bridling, and, you know, the, the drill. And then I started putting him on horses and he rode pretty good. And, and you'd have to talk to him about exactly how that went down because it's been a time ago. But anyway, he was riding really good. He was craving it and he was sincere and his name's Matt McCoslin. Oh, no kidding. And, and Matt trains Rainers in the Northwest and does a good job and, and so anyway, and I had this guild in there and Sally's kind of putting some pressure on me to pedal him. And I really liked the horse and I was trying to buy some time and in those days I was pretty creative. And I said, Matt, would you like the opportunity to show a horse? And he, he was like, so I called Sally and I said, Sally, look it. I said, this, this gilding, there's just something I believe in him. And I said, I know you don't want to put any more money in him, but I got a kid here that 
has peddled his bicycle, told him the story, da-da-da-da-da, and I said, he doesn't have any money. Later on, I found out he did. His parents were just <laughs> <laughs> they, they were just conservative. But anyway, and I said, how about if we lease this horse to this kid? It'll get you off the pay deal. I'm going to eat some of it and give this kid an opportunity because he's got some talent and he has done everything I've asked him to do and more. And it'll buy me some time to keep training this horse and see if this horse comes through this because I really believe in him. She said, I'll do that. I got Matt, sat him down and said, this is your opportunity to have a lifetime. And I told him what I was offering him. And I said, you go home and talk to your parents about it. This is an opportunity to go show a horse, and if you do well, qualify for the youth finals, maybe get to go. He went home, talked to his parents, and I'd met his mom and dad, and they're wonderful people. And we did the deal. And two months later, things are getting a little dicey. He, you know, this horse, I'm putting a little more pressure on him. He's getting a little weird. The kid's getting nervous. And he comes to me one day and says, I, I think that I don't, I don't want to do this. And I said, okay. And I let him go back out and he was, you know, he wanted to work, but he didn't want to do the lease. And I thought about it a little bit and I called him back out in the end of the day and I says, man, I says, I want to tell you something. I said, I stuck my neck out for you. I said, things are getting a little rugged. I believe in this horse. And I stuck my neck out for you to believe in you. And here's your opportunity to step up. And when the going gets tough, you hang in there. And I said, this will change your life. One way or the other, it'll change your life to where things get tough and you walk away from them instead of hanging in there. I said, you believed in me and you pedaled your bicycle here every day, hounding me for a job. I says, you need to hang in there. And he did, and he won the world. Huh. Huh. That's cool. Oh, That's really and cool. And then I took him and won the world. Wow. Twice. And won three bronzes on him. And won the honor roll on him. Wow. And I won the cow horse, I won the reining. And then when we were moving, he was out in pasture. And the big deal at that time was a super horse. Everybody wanted to win the super horse. And I healed a lot, but I, I don't head worth a damn. And Robbie Schroeder was a good friend of mine. And I called Robbie and I said, Robbie, when I move down here, I'm bringing Boots Valentine down. And I said, we want to run for the super horse. And I said, I want to give you Boots. And you know how I feel about him. And I said, I want you to train him to be a rope horse. And if it takes two years, I don't care. I, we're not looking for a quick fix. Did you own him at this point? No, my customer did. S same, same people or you've sold him? second customer uh -huh. 
And I'll, I can go back and tell you that right. story too because, and Robbie said, I'm in. When you get down here, I would be honored to ride him. Because he had seen me show him and he was kind of a legend. And, and uh, two weeks before we moved, he died. Oh, geez. Oh. He was out in the pasture, and they found him dead. Oh. He didn't want to move to Texas. Mm-mm. He, he didn't want Robbie. <laughs> <laughs> but what I did with Sally is the after Matt won, and then I won the world in the cow horse. Matt showed him in the reining and won the reining. I showed him in the cow horse and won the cow horse on him. And when I got home, Jory Sariano, who had been a customer of mine forever, we grew up together, she rode Booger Skip, who was a legend, and with Bruce. And um, Joy said, I have watched you train that horse for two years. She says, I love that horse. I'd give anything to have that horse. And I said, well, you want me to call Sally? And she said, call her. I called Sally and I said, Sally, I said, I got somebody that wants to buy Boots Valentine. Now they were willing to sell him for 3,500 a year and a half. All right, when they were done putting yeah. training in him, yeah. And they didn't have to pay any training for that year, because I- And got two world titles on him. Yeah, two world titles. And I said, Sally, I said, I got a customer in the barn and you're a customer of mine. You've got three horses with me and this set and Joy's got four horses with me. I says, Joy wants to buy him. Would you sell him? And she said, I wouldn't take a penny less than fifty thousand. He's a gilding. And this is in nineteen I won the world on him in ninety and ninety one. So this would have been in eighty nine or ninety because I won the world in eighty nine too on Checks my freckles. But anyway, so 50,000 then is like, what today, 100? Oh, more. But anyway. Maybe, a, maybe like 500. And, and Sally, Sally said to me, I wouldn't take less than 50,000 for him. And I said, is that what you're telling me you want for him? And she says, I would take that for him. I got off the phone, I called Joy, and I said, sit down, Joy. I says, now I'm gonna tell you something. I said, You'll never see this money again. But you will never <coughs> quit smiling. <laughs> and I said, she, she wants 50000 for him. And she said, Steve Metcalf, you bet everything on him and his eyeballs. <laughs> we betted him. He was clean. Uh, he didn't have, and of course the technology is much greater today, but he didn't have anything. She bought him, and that woman smiled for the rest of her life. <laughs> and I won her three bronzes, two world titles. She, she won a reserve world title on him. She almost fell off him on the first turn. That's why she <laughs> didn't win. And uh, wow, ran the honor roll. We had won everything we could win on him, 
at that time. And Joyce says, I know you hate the trailer race, but she said, you know, you went to the Sun Circuit and you won every day of the Sun Circuit cruising. She says, what do you think about going for an honorable title? And I says, I'll tell you what. I said, if, if I'm so far ahead in July, I'll do it. And if I'm not, I'm done. I don't want to go to a million. And that's when Charlie Hutton was, he would fill these classes at these horse shows and, you know, to win the honor roll every year. Yeah. And in July, I had 130-some points schooling him. <laughs> and Charlie quit running. <laughs> <laughs> So then I see you had uh, spent a little time on New Checks to Cash, speaking of Charlie Hutton. Very short time. Uh-huh. Yeah. I, I showed, Charlie called me when I moved down here, the first year I moved down here and said, look, it, I would give anything to have New Checks to Cash go to the world and the reining and the cow horse. So we made a deal and they shipped him here and I rode him and, and Todd Cropper trained new text cash we all know that and he showed him i saw him show him as a three-year-old he wasn't great but it wasn't because of todd you know and uh i had him to get him ready for the world show and i had him i, I don't know three or four months i took him to an nrha reigning just to see what he was going to be like and that was the year that uh, they had gunner and uh, they had it up there where they have the sales in Oklahoma. They, that was when they had the, that raining deal up there. And I just cruised him through and marked three and a halves on him. And, and uh, he wasn't good in the rain and he, he had hell turned around. And I remember when Crawford had him, he had hell turned around and Charlie had him kind of sucked back and on a cow, he would go like this and that drove me crazy a little bit but anyway i i yeah huh but i i can't take any credit for training him i just they wanted me to show him and right well i just think it's interesting you know how like say all the paths get crisscrossed crossed around and everything right. else and get hands on all these different kind of horses yeah mm-hmm so probably one of my favorite horses that I've seen you show, like say, we've talked a little bit about Vintage to Honeshine, and I mean, he was, I remember, I was working for Carol here, he was a three-year-old, and I remember you getting him ready for that, and that was, he was outstanding. He was a good horse, and you know, there was two things, three things that were funny about that horse. The first one was, we all spend time just turning him around slow to get that step. And I knew he was a good horse. I mean, he had the engine. I was kind of getting revitalized in, you know, I took a hiatus from the Snapple bit maturity. When I first moved down here, I got that Playboy stud and it was the last year it was in Fresno and I went and I was reserved. Is that dry and play? No. No, this was a horse that some people from Europe bought. He was by uh, he was by Playboy and and out of a daughter, a smart little Lena. 
and um, I got him and trained him from the start and I hadn't been back to the snaffle bit paturity in like eight years. I've been running the quarter horse deal and doing that deal and I had some, you know, there's another, there's an, I'm going to take a twisted road. There's another place where Bobby is so smart. In those days, things were, in my opinion, we had 11 paturities we'd go to. You would start showing at the paturities at Hermiston, Oregon. And you would stay on the road, and you'd have your bridle horses and your hackamore horses and your paturity horses, and you would go and tell Medford. Medford was the last paturity of the year. It was in late November. And we'd go to Idaho twice. We'd go to, we'd go to Oregon twice. We'd go to Washington twice. You could, uh, we went to Kalispell, Montana. And... Uh, you get to stay on the road, and it was western. <laughs> and I don't really want to get too much into some of the things that went on of those deals, but Bruce sawing his door down at the Outlaw End in Kalispell, Montana, is one of them. Um, <gasps> he couldn't find his key. <laughs> <laughs> And, and when you when you signed into the outlaw end of Kalispell, Montana, you signed a waiver and you can do anything you want, but you got to pay for it. And all them loggers and everything there, and we had been out to dinner and we come in and we had had way too much to drink. We had been in the bar and then gone to dinner and then come back and went back in the bar and Bruce got pretty drunk and Bruce was a crazy son of a gun anyway. And... When you went into the motel, the office and everything's there, and then there's two swinging doors, and that's into the bar and the dance floor, and that's where everybody hung out. And, and Bruce's room was, if you came out of the swinging doors and hung a right and went down the hallway, you had the first door on the right. And Bruce is toasted. I mean, he's, he's had way too much. And he just kind of walks out and going to his room well when we had come in from the restaurant we had walked by this truck and it was a logging truck and there was two chainsaws in there and we had made a comment about it <laughs> so anyway we're kind of keeping an eye on bruce because he's he's drunk enough that what he isn't walking right you know and we kind of make sure he gets out the doors and hangs right and then we're back in the bar. It ain't 15 minutes later and all of a sudden we hear <laughs> We go running out the doors. He has sawed his door down because it's all, they have all these stuffed animals, these wild animals in the deal. It's real Western looking and everything and all the doors are wooden. and. He sawed his door down. When we get there, the door is falling in, and Bruce is face down on the bed, passed out. Chainsaw still running? Chainsaw was on the floor. <laughs> that was 11 paturities, and that is the same kind of stuff that happened at every paturity. <laughs> I saw Tony Garcia at Medford 
Smokey, uh, Skippy, they're sitting there at the bar and they decide to start drinking 151 rum in shots. Mm. And I saw Tony Garcia take his last shot and when it went down, he went right off the bar stool. <laughs> it, it was Western. Uh, everybody had a really good time. It, uh, there, there's a lot of, lot of stories and all that. But anyway, where was I uh, before I went on this wild trail? I don't know. That was awesome. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, I know I was just kind of touching on some of them horses and, that you've trained. Oh, okay. And that some of them, like, have you shown any that you didn't have to share? You know, Sky and Mister. Yeah. Um, I didn't have to share her. I had con complete control of her. I didn't. I didn't train her. There wasn't any non. There, well, John McCarty was the only non-pro that could stay in the middle of her, probably. Probably. <laughs> and and you know, I tried to buy that merit snapple bit paturity, and John said nope. And he says I want to show her at the rain and paturity, and I go to the rain and paturity because we went every year, and he's there, and we were friends. And he showed her, and he didn't make the finals, and he came up to me, he said, I'm ready to sell her. And I said, I got a buyer. And I called, <coughs> I called Paul and Amy Bailey, and her mare just got off winning the world that I'd redone for, that genuine cross tie. Yeah. And uh, I said, I found you a horse. And they came in, and she rode her around and said, I really like her, and we made the deal. And I took her home, and John said, now this mare is quirky, Steve, and she can be bronchy, so you kind of watch her. And she had had a little abscess, and we checked it out, and it was okay, but I took her home and I let her rest. And she was in the stall for about a week, and not thinking, because I was so excited to ride her, because I had seen her work, and I, you know, I go out to the Hollister Ranch all the time and stuff. So anyway, kid that's working for me, I didn't even think about it. I'm out in the cutting pen, and I got a whole bunch of people out there, and I want to ride this mare, and she's had the four or five days off, and it's time to ride her, and it's a sunny day, and I said, go saddle that mare and bring her out to me. Well, he usually rides everything out. He's leading her. <laughs> and he brings her out, and he ain't looking at me. And I'm, I'm like, you know, you know how I am. You know, I'm yelling at this kid and that kid and everything, and I trade horses with him, and I get a hold of her, and I jump in the middle of her, and she proceeds to kick my butt. And, <laughs> and I'll tell you what she did. She would suck back and rear like she's gonna go over backwards. And the minute she feels you get away from her and get forward, it's on, baby. <laughs> and she would break in half. And really, I was riding her good because there's a rhythm there. But she was just beating the crap out of me <laughs> to the point where I just, grabbed all the horn and just kind of stepped off. I landed on my feet, but she was killing me <laughs> and she wasn't stopping. 
So everybody's going, you know, and I jipped around a little bit, got on her. That's the only time she ever did that, except for she did it to Terry Christensen. <laughs> uh, one time when he came down to visit. And, uh, but anyway, that mare, you know, John hadn't bridled her and he hadn't hackam order. He snapple bitted her. Well, and he showed her in the rain of dirty in the bridle, but. Yeah, not really. Yeah. yeah. So I spent a lot of time on her and uh, Amy, bought, Amy, Amy bought her and we had a pleasure customer, big money huge money, Learjet, the whole deal. And he's got pleasure horses with us. We're still in the pleasure horse business and he's catering to Carol. And he's flying her to Vegas and here and there. And I said, Carol, I said, that fella, he's spending money like it ain't his. And you know how that usually works out. I said, you keep an eye on things because things don't look right. About that time, he comes to me and he says, I want to buy a cow horse. He says, I want your best cow horse. And I said, well, I said, I just bought her. And I said, I don't think she's for sale. But he said, you find out. I called Paul up. I said, Paul, I said, I got some people that want to buy your mare. And if you want to sell her, Amy hadn't even rode her. She, she rode her that one day at the Rainy Paturity, and that was it. They hadn't even been out yet. And I said, if you want to sell her, uh, I can make you a profit. Paul called me back and said, well, if they want to give me this amount of money, I'll sell her. He bought her. And this, this is the good Lord operating again. So anyway, I sit this man down and I say, if you buy this mare, this is not a short-term deal. I said, I want to build this mare the way I want to build her, where this isn't going to be a fast track. That's not the way I do it. And I says, and when we're done, I want to pull embryos out of her. This is a long-term thing. And if you don't want a long-term, slow deal, don't do it. It just... I'd rather not start it. And he said, I'm in. So I start building her, and I'm just cruising her through those quarter horse shows, and I get her qualified in the reining, and I get her qualified in the cow horse. But she's not a reiner. And so anyway, she's qualified for the world, and, and I want to take her first year as a four-year-old in the cow horse. And I always had to go through their manager. I could never talk to him direct. So I call their manager and say, look at, I said, this mare's qualified in the cow horse and the reining, but I said, I don't want to show her in the reining. I just want to show her in the cow horse. She's four, she's not really a reiner. And even though she's entered, I'm not going to show her in the cow horse. In the, he, rain. in the rain. Or in the rain. Well, he forgot to tell his owner. So I'm at the World Show. Apparently, Mr. Percher and the family and the kids and oh. the relatives and the this and the that show up because she's in her in the rain. And I've already drawn her out. I mean, she was in the draw, but I went up there and told Parker to draw her out of the rain. 
and they're waiting up there and it's a scratch and and I get a phone call from the manager sell the mare I says what do you mean sell the mare he said bah she's pissed off I says I told you I said that's what happens when I have to go in between someone he doesn't remember but anyway so I've always had a partner that is the second best partner I've ever had. I can call him up and say, you want a partner on a horse, here's the deal, and he says sure or no, and we've done this for years. And a great human being, lives up in Washington, never asked any questions. We've won, we've made more money than we've lost. When we lose money, he's the same way as if we made money. I call him up and I say, look it, I says, here's my dilemma, wants to sell the mare. And I asked the manager, I said, well, what does he want for? And he says, he doesn't care. Just sell her. I'm out. Well, I call my partner. I sold her for 60000 I says, it's going to cost us each 30000 da-da-da-da-da, he says, must do it. Told him the same deal, long-term deal, we'll breed her. And I called the manager back and I said, look it, I says, you don't care what we get for? He says, he doesn't care, and he says, I'm going to give you your money back. I'm going to give you exactly what I sold her to you for. Because I'm an honorable guy and you're not. And I said, you're not going to get any of your training back or your expenses, but you don't care what you get. I could sell it for twenty-five thousand. You wouldn't care, but I got to live with it. I'm gonna give you your sixty thousand back. We paid him. I took her. I built her that next year. I came back. I won the cow horse, and was sixth in the cut, in the junior cut, and when it was pretty right. salty, mm-hmm. and sold it for one hundred and twenty-five thousand. So when you do things right comes back to you yeah so what do you see about uh, these kids coming up you've seen so many generations come through i mean that makes me sound really old but you're not that old but you have seen a lot of generations come up you've seen a lot of cocky kids fall on their face what do you tell these young, ca- well, young kids are you talking kids are you talking youth or are you talking no. these young trainers? No. young trainers young trainers You know, I don't look at the young trainers as some of them are cocky and some of them are not. I've been able to the last few years reflect a little bit. And, And I've got a bit of a reputation for being a kind of a hard ass. Can I say that word? Mm-hmm. Okay. I just did. <laughs> But you know something, we all go through that stage. I remember when we were rocking and rolling and setting myself aside and talking to, I mean, I had great respect for people like Dodge and 
and Jimmy Williams and Gene Lewis and and T.A. and all them because I was raised with them as a kid. When we were going to them paternities and stuff and that, you know, and the older guys, we we were we were a little arrogant and a little cocky and thinking, you know, they know more than we do, but we're gonna out we're gonna do this and we're gonna do that and and you know, I can see myself being that way. And we go we 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 hope that we stay humble. But we have moments. And um, you know, the horse industry you can be a superstar today and a chump tomorrow. And you know, the cockiness, if you have any passion for the business, it takes care of itself. Just going in there and showing about the time you think you're a hero, <laughs> the next day you're a zero. <laughs> yes. And so it kind of takes care of itself. And the only thing that I hope is that when it takes care of itself, that the young person recognizes it and goes, okay, you know, maybe I'm growing up a little bit, okay. And stabilizes a little bit. But you know, to be in this business and be under the limelight and the competition and the adrenaline and the horses and the, and the vets and the, and the owners and everything, there's gonna be some ups and downs. And it's not easy. All I care is that the young people learn to grow. Maybe they'll listen a little bit. And if they've been raised with respect, they'll probably be respectful. If they haven't been raised with any respect, how can you expect them to be respectful? And, uh, you know, I always respected my parents and, and uh, you know, it's just, it's growth. And, uh, and there's a difference between growth and just being stupid. Mm -hmm. And you know, the old saying, you can't fix stupid. But mm -hmm. duct tape muffles the sound. <laughs> <laughs> and I think that uh, we have this revolving door that we go through, and it has different colors on the doors. And you can go through the first revolving door and make the mistake. And... If you'll learn to recognize that you're going through that same revolving door again and it's a different color, but you're doing the same thing again and again and again, you know, how many times do you have to do it before you have a different result? You know, so I, did, I think us as the senior citizens, the mid citizens, the it's, it's up to us to try to set an example, uh, even if maybe they weren't raised with an example. And so I think it's our responsibility, my responsibility to, to you know, try to show them that you know, we're, all, we're all in this together. Well, I know you did that with me. I think when I was, I guess I was at Carroll's, you invited me down there. Poured me a glass of whiskey in this Texas shot glass. 
It was like a liter of Crown Royal. No, it was bigger than that. It was <laughs> huge. And, of course, I don't know. I wasn't sure if it was a test of maturity to say, hey, I can't drink that. Or if you're going to be down here, you're going to be able to drink that. <laughs> I, don't, I, I, I chose the latter. <laughs> of course. <laughs> but I know that. You didn't uh, ask for a second. I did not ask for a second, no. But I know, I don't know, there was multiple occasions where I felt you kind of pulling me under my under your wing a little and being like, hey, you're being a dipwad. You need to probably straighten up a little bit. You know, if you hadn't had any ability and if I didn't sing the good in you, I wouldn't have bothered. <laughs> well, I appreciate it. <laughs> I mean, shoot, I remember, I remember you bringing your tractor and drag down the street to, down 370s, I see down the street, <laughs> driving down the highway to the Circle Y. Yeah, but... Chris, you earned that respect. Well, we were a little farther down the road at that point. Yeah. But, you, uh, you, you earned that respect. But uh, yeah. anyway, I guess it's uh, my way of saying thank you for uh, dealing with uh, immature youth and, uh, yeah, trying to pry us out of the mire. Oh, I, it's... He's a regular uh, Don Brown. Hmm? <laughs> You're a regular Don Brown. You went and jumped in that mud hole and <laughs> drug him out of there. <laughs> I'll tell you, you guys are missing the boat if you don't do Don. Yeah, we know. Yeah, we love that guy. We're working and on that. Time's ticking. Yep. Yep. Yeah, we got to just plan us a trip. We've got to do a trip sometime. Yeah, yeah. Line. and, 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 and I'll, I'll come along. I mean, I don't have to. You don't have to pay for my trip, but I'll come along and we'll go fishing. Yeah, <laughs> and bear hunting. We'll all take our twenty-two pistols. Lion. <laughs> <laughs> I'm taking more than a twenty-two if we're going lion hunting. No, when, when I took my son out there a couple of years ago, we went we went lion hunting. Took the dogs and roded the dogs, and that'd be good watching right there. Mm-hmm. So you go back and talk to your 20-year-old self, what do you tell him? You know, and I heard these questions today, too. Um, you know, there's things I could have done better. Um, but it, it hasn't been a washout. I mean... You know, now now that you reflect and look back on on what you've done, you you always have things you could have done better. But I I was in the moment, and uh, I'm thankful that I had great family. Uh, I had a dad that was. I was raised in a very unique family and came out all right. I mean, it, it could have been, I mean, when, when I look back on it, it could have been really interesting. But he was a stand-up guy and he, he, he raised five boys before me. What could I do that he hadn't seen five times before? <laughs> right. you know, every time I thought about doing something, you know. He'd already I'll, seen it. I'll, I'll tell you, and I don't want to take up, you know, it's getting late. When I, This is the one story about my father when I look back on that I'm absolutely amazed about because I'm a father. I was 17 years old. And me and two buddies had a friend that had moved to Southern California. 
and we wanted to go see him. And we wanted to take a road trip. And I went to my dad, and I was working at a Chevron gas station, doing mechanican, and I had to work from 7 to 11 because I was playing, I was doing track. And so I closed the deal. And I took a little hiatus from riding. But anyway, we wanted to go see him, and we wanted to take a road trip. And I went to him and I said, would you give me your pickup, three-quarter ton pickup, had a canopy on it. And go on this road trip. And he says, well, you map out the road trip and show it to me and and da-da-da-da-da. And so we did. We told him we were going to go down to La Jolla, pick up our buddy. We were going to go down through Arizona, go to the caverns. Grand Canyon, go up through, go to the, the Tetons and the Yellowstone and come around and come through Spokane and back down. That's a heck of a road trip. We're, well, we're going to be gone a month. Oof. Oh. We're 17. Yeah. Okay. He says, you put new tires on my truck and you service it every so many miles and you get on a paint phone and call me every evening and I'll let you do it. And I serviced his truck and put new tires on it. We had saved enough money, and off we went. And we went on that adventure, and we went down to La Jolla, went around, picked him up, went around. We met some wonderful people in the, in the Tetons from Austin, Texas, <laughs> Mr. and Mrs. Peoples. We went to Yellowstone and made the deal in a month and called him every evening. You know, we found a pay phone, because I mean, <laughs> and he, he had enough. I mean, when I think about that, what he let me do <laughs> at 17 years old with his truck, and we didn't get in any trouble, and we camped out, and we stayed in that back of that pickup, and when we got to Spokane, Washington, we had enough money to fill the gas tank. And there was a place called King's Table, all you can eat for three bucks. <laughs> we ended, that's the only place we ended up getting kicked out of. Because we went in there and every time you got a plate of food, you had to get a new plate. And the three of us guys had a plate of dishes, and they finally said, enough is enough. <laughs> <laughs> and when we got home, we each had probably a buck to our name. <laughs> and he let me do that. And I, to this day, I, I'm amazed that he, that he did that. That's pretty cool. That's a lot. That takes a lot of courage. A lot. <laughs> but like say, shoot, you had five brothers to start out with. That should have made you more, Larry. That would have made you more nervous. You know, <laughs> you know, I, I was, he gave me that responsibility, and it was kind of like I stepped yep. up. Yep. But that takes courage. Mm-hmm. Not on my part, on his. Right. Mm. Mm, that's good stuff. What do you think the uh, biggest training mistake you see people make? Overtrain. 
training intervals. You know, if you're working on a problem and you don't get it all, let your horse air up, walk around, you'd be amazed when you go back and ask them again, it may be there. But sometimes guys just get so involved in it and they just keep, and pretty soon, if you stop and think about you putting that saddle on you, you know, I did track and football and I, I remember going, <laughs> I can't take another step. And I, and, and I don't think it's done out of being bad or a lousy horse trainer. I think you get so involved and you're getting ready to show and consider your horse. It's amazing how when you're working on a problem and maybe you don't get, you know, you're working today for tomorrow. Tomorrow you're going to find out the results of today. And, you know, if I get a certain, certain way with a horse and I don't get it all that day, next day I get on them and I start again and see where I leave off. Because I want them to escape. I just want them to escape where I want them to escape. Because I want them to like doing what they're doing. And sometimes we get wrapped up in this thing where we just keep tightening it down and more and more and more. And this horse is giving it. And by the time that guy's done schooling that horse, you got less than you had when you started. Mm -hmm. And 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 you got to understand my personality is longevity. I got horses out there that are, you, you see the same horses in my show pen, I just keep selling to somebody else that are 15, 16, 17 years old and they're solid in their deal. You know, I, I might have to put the new person together with that horse to make the package and show them how things operate and how that horse's personality is and what it takes to peak them and so on and so forth. But, you know, these horses are individual just like people and, and if, if you understand their language if you understand how they how they think and how they talk, uh, it makes our job easier. You know, when you're young and you're tough and you know you can just. But I'd rather get on that thing and do a little of this and that, and it's there and I know it's there and and the horse is willing to do it and and I know when I walk in that pen I don't have to keep sampling it because it's there. And uh, I just think we. If, if I've got to get into a horse pretty deep, I do it in intervals. I'll, I'll work on it a little bit, and then I might be given a lesson, walk around, let that horse air up, let him relax a little bit, and then I might go ask him again. I'm always amazed when I go ask him again, and they go, I got you. It's there, and I just get off. So I just think we get so wrapped up in it in the heat of battle, sometimes we forget about you know, we just absolutely we mm -hmm. just get tight. Mm -hmm. Well, if you could pick one event to win, that you haven't, what would you pick? Only one event. Then you got to be done. You mean I can't ever show again? Yep. Nope. Retirement run. I'd have to be the Snapple bit. I mean, I've I've won all the other Snapple bits, but I've never won that one. It'd probably be that one. Yeah. You know, mm -hmm. I won the bridle and I won the cow palace. And 
You didn't have Town Charger on there. That was before Equistat. That was before Equistat. <laughs> I won a cow palace on him, and that's probably my biggest thrill victory. I, wow. I can only imagine. You went to the cow palace on Russell's uh-huh. I've never been. They were still having it. Todd went up there someone yeah. when I worked for him. But. It is. It wasn't like it was, but it was still it was still amazing. All the world shows and stuff that I won, the Cow Palace when I won it, five in the finals, Kim, Kim Zoki Leo, Ingersoll's in there, Amarel, I can't even remember the other, because they seed it, and there were 67 horses in the open bridle, and they take five to the finals. Mm. And to win mm. that, that, and those people in the stands, and they hold up them big cards. Uh, that that was my thrill, 1982. Mm. That is Especially good. because I was winning the, I was winning the open bridle at the Snapple Bit the month before, and I'm going to beat one of my good buddies, Bobby Ingersoll, on Royal Cutter. And I spun too many times. Oh, in the youth. I got, you know, they're working me. Les is behind me, and I'm trying to back Town Charger up, and he's in my way, and you know they're, and I'm nervous, and you know it's a, it's on me, you know, and I have a chance to beat Royal Cutter and Bobby Ingersoll, one of my idols, and the pressure <laughs> got to me, and what's funny is. I came back from that show, the people that owned the horse, they were, you know, they weren't real thrilled. And I said, please give me an opportunity to, you know, he's entered at the Cow Palace. And I go down there and I'm seated second in the finals and I won it by like nine points. Wow. And, and we went to dinner and I was so relieved and thrilled. When we got home, they took the horse away from me. At <laughs> 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 least you went out on a high note. Yeah, yeah at least you went out on a Well, I guess some things never change. No. Yeah. It's okay. Bill's character. All right. Well, that might have led into your biggest disappointment. Oh, is that your question? Yeah. What's my biggest disappointment? Wow. Horse related? Yeah. Gosh, I don't... Thought this was just a build-up session or what? (laughs) Well, I don't have one that stands out. (laughs) Um, I I don't know how to answer that. I mean, I'd have to think about... You know, there's there's disappointments. That's called growth. I mean, you you grow from your failures, not your successes. Um, biggest disappointment. I don't, I'm not going to answer it. <laughs> not not because, none. Not because it's bad. Just because I just don't. Uh, Nothing was bad enough. I guess. I don't know. I mean, I got stuff flashing in, in front of me, but... Russell, he's my biggest disappointment. 
And I don't even know why. <laughs> Sounds just like my dad. <laughs> well, see, you got to understand, I'm a, I'm a generation removed, so I am like being your dad. <laughs> That's right. That's the way I was raised. That's right. What else? What are we forgetting? Five minutes. Oh, yeah. I, I have a son. You do? Yeah. He worked for you, remember? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we talked about it. Yeah. How's, how is it him growing up, watching him grow up and go through the struggles of being an aspiring horse trainer? You know, um, sometimes looking in the mirror is not good. <laughs> uh, it's been an adventure it's it's been a fun adventure it's not over yet and you know he's he's struggling and he's fighting and you know it's i hope when it's all said and done he takes that trip right you know whatever he wants to do whether it's train horse i don't you know i i could care less whether he trains horses to be honest with you right. as long as he's happy and and responsible and that's it he's been snapchatting me he seems like he's a pig in slop up there in the old uh Warwick, yeah. oklahoma depends <laughs> on what day it is leon oklahoma you know but uh he's he's trying to find his way and you know at some point in time we all have to find our way that's it well he's a heck of a good dude and you ought to be proud of him yeah. so i'll say and has matured so much just in the last last few years. He's got a great mama. <laughs> it's 80% the mayor. Thank yep. God. Yep. Thank God. Yep. So would you say, what would be your most important five minutes of your career? If you have any of those little tidbits. Watching my wife give birth. That only took five minutes? No, it took 36 hours. Gee, oh, my Lord. <laughs> wow. Change perspective a little? Well, uh, I always knew she was tough, but the story is that I was at a show in Oregon at a circuit. It's in February. I got a group of non-pros with me and some open horses. And on the way home, we're on a whiteout. It's a blizzard. It takes four hour, four and a half hours to get home normally. It took us nine. We get home, it's five o'clock in the morning. I get to the house, everything's put up, everything's done, she's in bed. I get out of my clothes. Of course, you know how schooling is. We schooled all night, showed all day, and then drove home in the whiteout. And an hour later, she wakes me up and she says, my water broke. Fix it. <laughs> <laughs> and, I, and her folks are staying with us because, you know, her, her mom was a nurse and, and they, they want to see the birth of the child and all that stuff. And I said, okay. So I get up and I'm kind of, you know, and she says, look it. She says, the hospital's 10 minutes away. She said, mom and dad can take me, 
And if this is going to take a little while, or if, if it's going to be right away, I'll call you. This is how classy my wife is, okay? And I said, ah, you don't know. No, she says, just, we're good. I got a registered nurse. We're good. I said, okay. So, I don't even know why I said that, because the minute she left, I couldn't go back to sleep. You know, <laughs> I had to get up, and I, I can't. But anyway, we had one of them Jeeps, because we live in Washington, and we get snow and all that. Unbeknownst to me, they go out to get in the car. There's two foot of snow on the ground, okay? They're from Santa Maria, California. Her, her parents have never seen snow, except when they come up to Washington. So Carol looks at her dad, and he's going, she says, get in the car, I'll drive. She's having contractions, okay? She's oh. big as a house. She drives herself to the hospital, okay? This is how tough she is. She gets there. I've already woke up, jumped in the shower, and thought, nah, I, I can't. I'm, I'd load the dogs in the truck, and off to the hospital I go. I go into the hospital. Everything's cool. It's going to be a while. So I've got a list of things that she normally does that I'm going to go to the bank and the post office and bills and this and that. So I just start running around. And I go do a few errands and come back. Well, 36 hours later, you know, her contractions are the opposite of what they should be. She is like doing this for X amount of minutes versus you know, the short and, you know. yeah. anyway, 36 hours later, here comes little Carter, you know. When I saw her head turn all the way around, <laughs> <laughs> I knew this wasn't, this is not the place for me to be. Mm. Should have stayed at home till she called. <laughs> Probably. I mean, I ran errands all day and into the evening, you know. And she, and Carter was almost born on Benny's birthday, which we were, you know, at that time, we were real tight and everybody was rooting to be on Benny's birthday and all that. And mm. He was day late, so that's okay. Them women are tough. Yeah, I was on. Mm. Yeah. Well, we got to our four-hour threshold with you also, Steve. Huh? Did we really do four hours? Four hours. Pretty impressive. Whisk right by. Right on by. So we can't thank you enough for joining us. I thank you for the invite. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks a million. Yep. Well, until next time, folks, go fast. Make good decisions. Thank you for listening to Cow Horse, Full Contact. Please like our Facebook page and follow us on Instagram to stay tuned for future episodes.